Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spiro Avenue Show. You could follow us on social media at Spiro Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch our full episodes and clips and highlights on YouTube. And we would appreciate it if you could hit that subscribe button for us. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Now go home and get your fucking shine box. Motherfucking mother! Wake up, Henry. When you love someone, you've got to trust them. There's no other way. I'm going. I want my money right now. Get your money. Go on. The arrangement is over. Smoke killing! You said I'm bringing heat on you? I gotta listen to people because of your fucking shit? Now I gotta turn my back. They asked me again about you and the Jew's wife. Welcome to the Original Gangsters Podcast. The hostess with the mostest. If you go to, you know, my Gangster Report website, plug, plug, hit the siren, Benny. Yeah, we've been doing this show for about three years, and I would have to say our three most requested return guests, our three most popular episodes, I don't know where you are on that, Scott Bernstein, but your first, second, or third, you're certainly in that top three. The episode we did covering the mafia at large and Jimmy Hoffa and where the hell is this guy? talking about the Detroit Mafia, is the first or second most popular episode we've ever done. I've had you back here with Jeff, also a great episode, but your solo act with me was arguably the most popular show we've ever done. This is the first time you've been back since just you. I'm thrilled to have you, Scott Bernstein. Welcome back to the show. Thanks Spirit for having me. I'm show. honored. I'm in like the, you know, the, the third time members club. Hopefully I can, you know, get to double digits before it's all said and done on our careers. That's like Tony Paul territory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, people love this stuff. I've been able to make a career out of it. Um, And and what we're doing today is really kind of at the heart or the crux of why I got into this to a degree. And when I when I was working um, as a law student at working mob cases for the Illinois attorney general's office as an uh, intern, I, my only points of reference, because people assume that I was kind of always into this and I, I wasn't, it wasn't something I got into until I was my, in my twenties, but my only points of reference for this world were was good fellows in casino. Um, and when I was working in the AG's office, and this would have been 2001, two, three ish, I felt like those movies were coming to life in the work that I was doing. And I was like, I wanted, I want to know more about the real stories behind the stories that kind of sparked my interest in this. Why do you think we care so much? Why do we like this so much? Uh, Cause you know, they live uh, outside the parameters of normal society and, and it's something that you can kind of, be interested in and in some ways kind of live vicariously through without actually putting your toe into that water or jumping into the deep end of that pool or that ocean. Um, it, what I've found in, in studying these guys and getting to know a lot of them, uh, 
is that you're doing your you're doing yourself a disservice if you're looking at everyone as kind of a one-dimensional name on a piece of paper. And I, I was guilty of that for a long time. I mean, these are three-dimensional, multi-dimensional human beings. Some of them are very likable. Some of them are uh, fun to be around. Some of them are psychopaths, and you wouldn't want to have a, a drink or a meal with them. But some of them, I, I see very easily how people can be seduced by the life. I mean, people watch Goodfellas, for example, and we'll talk about it. I kind of want to hang out sometimes right. with that group. Yeah. So you think there's an element we'll get yeah, to more well, of the details. Well, but. I've, you know, this is my job. I mean, sometimes my job is literally to go out and socialize with these guys, you know, field research. And I, it's a slippery slope. I mean, it really is. And I've gotten bit a couple of times, not to the point where I ever got physically hurt or arrested or anything, but where I let lines blur and it, and it came back to bite me. And it's something I always have to be aware of that as as much as you think these guys like you or as fun as they are to hang out with you, you know, they're at the heart. These guys are are predatory and, you know, they, they kill you in, in the blink of an eye if, if it was going to benefit them or it was going to protect them. So do you view them? Obviously, we know the distinction mafia from an average Joe like you or me, you know, that's law abiding. We understand that distinction. One breaks the law, one doesn't. But that aside, just as guys hanging out is there a distinction there are these guys machiavellian in this they'll drop you if it benefits them even one percent you know in a second like how are they fundamentally different yeah, aside be, from the I'll literal tell, behavior well, i'll tell you one of <laughs> one of the most visceral ways is that and this is this is a great line from the movie goodfellas you know in the mafia when you're murdered it's your best friend that's pulling the trigger and you're being killed by the people that are closest to you. It's not people with masks and, uh, you know, drive bys or, or, you know, it's, it's very up close and personal. Your killers come with smiles. Right. That's what he says. Yeah. And it, and it couldn't be more true. So, I mean, you're hanging out with these guys, you view them cause they're not going to whack you. You're still here. At least well, but you know, you have to be careful. And I, I Make sure that you're in, you know, for the most part in public places, uh, you know, you, 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 you felt that way too. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And a couple of times I have gone to private residences and you have to be, you know, you have to be on your toes. Do you tell someone, Hey, I'm going yeah. to this address. You tell yeah, them in yeah, advance. Yeah, yeah. First time I ever went to go meet a mobster, I called, you know, an FBI contact and was just like, and this was somebody that was possibly involved in the Jimmy Hoffa disappearance. And I, you know, I called a guy that I know and just, hey, just so you know, this is who I'm going to meet. This is where I'm going to meet him. Why were you summoned there? Uh, I had just put out a documentary called Detroit uh, Mob Confidential. Go check it out. You can get it on Amazon Prime. Um, and I featured a kind of a part of the film as well as a part of my book on this one person. And we had some mutual acquaintances and he wanted to... Uh, I guess, pick my brain. Uh, he, be, he ended up becoming a, a valuable source to me and uh, someone that I, I felt very close to in, the, in this realm. I mean, still, I felt like this guy would kill me if he needed to. But in the context of, of uh, a mob reporter and his sources, or he was someone that was very good to me. And his name was Frank the Bomb Bomb Marito. 
longtime soldier in the Detroit Mafia, was an acting capo for Billy Jackaloni, who was probably the guy that did kill Jimmy Hoffa. Then Frank the Bomb was Billy Jack's right-hand man. Um, so he wasn't summoning you for a reprimand. It was just to pick your brain. He just wanted to meet me and see what I was about. And, and I, I went to a, he hosted when he was, he's, he's been dead now for, I don't know, five, six years, RIP, um, the bomb. But um, in his whole, his territory was South Warren. So you can imagine it's a rogues gallery of, of uh, it's, a, it's a hodgepodge of lower class white, lower class black, bikers not lower class lower lower income i don't yeah. want to say lower no, I'm uh, and um tattooed teenagers uh you know he um he used to host a, a spaghetti dinner every every tuesday um at a place on the east side called east side manor and it was a place for his crew to come and kind of celebrate the week and break bread together and uh, he invited me to it and i was there was a number of people there that were giving me the evil eye. Oh, and really? I, yeah, didn't like you, that. He, you felt it. Yeah, well, they and they were like giving it, you know, and at one point he snapped at one of his guys and was like, he's here, with, he's here with me. I told him he could come here. And if you have a problem with it, you bring it up to me. So there's that line in Casino. It's a, probably my favorite scene in that movie right before. And it's Robert De Niro narrating and says uh, something to the effect of normally, you know, I'd give my chance at a meeting with Nikki. 99 out of 100, I'd come right. out of that alive. Right. He gave himself 50-50. What did you give yourself when you got that I photo? mean, were you 99? I was 99. I, was, I didn't. I well, part of, you called the I wouldn't FBI. have gone. Right. You, I was you being careful. 1%. Right. I was being careful. But I, I didn't. I wouldn't have gone if I didn't feel like I had assurances from the people that were setting it up that this wasn't going to be some kind of ambush. Now, I have been summoned to a meeting well, if the what? mafia says they're not going to kill yeah. you, no, <laughs> uh, take that to the bank, right? You will. Well, I'm sure Hoffa be, had promises, right? Well, you ha you have to be able to sift through, uh, uh, you know, cut through a lot of fat in this world and know what's what's true and what's not, and who to believe and who not to believe. And for like I said, Frank ended up being a tremendous asset to me, uh, and you know, it was it's human nature though. I mean, he was on the outs with a lot of guys uh, after Billy Jackaloni had died, and he, there was a benefit for him bringing me close to him pissed off a lot of guys that he was mad at. Have you ever been more scared than that? Yeah, I'm, I was threatened. There was some I was summoned to a meeting with a, another criminal. I don't want to go into who it was, but is he alive? He's alive and he's someone that I, I take precautions for. Um, and uh, yeah, he he was angry about something that I wrote and felt like I was exposing him to uh, law enforcement scrutiny and uh, talking about an old murder that he had been charged in and the charges were dropped before trial. And there's no way that anybody's ever going to come back and try to charge him again for it. But there's no statute of limitations on, on a murder. And uh, he was quite animated and uh, throwing not so veiled threats in my direction. So he threatened you. Yeah. Did you call anybody to... You call the uh, FBI then. Well, and say, at that point, also I was there with some of his family members who stuck up for me, so they were protecting me. So the whole Pacino never speak out against the family yeah. thing that doesn't really. Right. And then, and then after they the didn't die for that. Right. Well, then the, his cousin and him started arguing with his cousin, being like, "Don't ever disrespect Scott." 
<laughs> so, but you, 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 we got to the one percent. I might die. Uh, I didn't think I was gonna die, but I definitely I felt said one like, percent. I definitely felt like I had to remove myself. Okay, from the restaurant that I was at. So we're obviously tonight talking about two of the ultimate classics: the Scorsese entries into this library of mm-hmm. fantastic mob movies. Maybe we'll have you back to discuss some of the other ones out there. There's so many good ones. Obviously, Goodfellas and Casino, I think, are two of the top five on anybody's list. And I've done a lot of professional work uh, on these two stories. Just quick yeah. uh, self-promotion. Uh, I wrote a book about the events surrounding the movie Casino. It's called Family Affair. It's been out for over a decade. Halfway through it, it's fantastic. Go, go, go read it. There hasn't been a lot of people to read it, but I think you'll enjoy it. I'm very proud of it, even though it didn't do incredibly well. Um, I think people got confused because there had been a book on the same subject, even though they were totally different stories, but it was the the title was similar to mine. It had come out a couple months before mine. I think a lot of people got confused between the two titles and thought that mine was like a soft cover version of that hardcover book, but that's neither. Yeah. You wrote the cliff notes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Uh, And I have produced and appeared on two uh, very high production value documentaries on uh, Fox News related to both the true story behind Casino and the true story behind Goodfellas. You can get them on Fox Nation, which is the Fox News streaming uh, platform. And the Goodfellas one came out in 2022, and the Casino one just dropped in uh, the summer, in June. So you've talked with many, many mobsters about many, many topics, a myriad of subjects over the years. That's your beat. You're a literal expert in it. You've written books on it. You're also a huge fan and savant with these movies. Mm-hmm. I'm curious where this intersection is. Has anyone ever said to you, hey, Scott, that's shit in Goodfellas. That was bullshit. That's that's not how things are like. We don't do things that way. Or is there been any type of pushback or the opposite? Are they rubber stamping it saying, hey, Scott, you want a real depiction of how we do things here? Go watch Casino. I mean, yeah. what is the mafia the actual mafia's perception of these movies do they enjoy them do yeah. they feel they're true they they love them they love they, them. they feel like it validates them and and further um pushes the narrative uh, that they're kind of icons in their own way it, it it promotes them i mean the godfather was the greatest thing that ever happened to the mafia it was the greatest recruiting tool in the history of of organized crime and and it also coincided at that same time in the seventies with the quote unquote opening of the books, um, the, the ability to get inducted into the New York mafia, uh, had been kind of the spigot had been, had been turned off, uh, because of the Appalachian Appalachian, um, conference, 1957, they referenced it in, in Goodfellas where all the mafia bosses from around the country, uh, came to a, a mob summit in upstate New York in 1957 and it got raided by uh, local police, and then it became a, quite a headline grabber. Um, and as a, a, as a method to kind of like batten the hatches and, and, and prevent, I guess, further damage uh, to, the, to the organization, they stopped inducting new members for about 15 or so years. Um, and then in right after the Godfather, the books opened up again in 1975 ish. And those are not unrelated events. You're saying I'm saying that once the Godfather came out, it became 
not only did the gangsters themselves love it, the younger guys wanted to aspire to that. Not to say that it, that hadn't been the case before that, but this was such a cultural touchstone and such a turning point culturally that I, I don't want, I don't want to say they were connected, but they definitely, the, the release of the Godfather and the, the Godfather phenomena, if you will, um, helped boost the ranks of the mafia in the mid seventies when they opened the books up and they brought in hundreds of people. Um, and I would guess most of those people loved the Godfather. So they, they like it in yeah. short. Yeah. Yeah. And Goodfellas and Casino. I mean, the one thing I hear from people that, that knew the Goodfellas crew, quote unquote, which was the, uh, a branch of the Lucchese crime family out of Brooklyn, the, the, in the movie, they're the Cicero crew, but in real life, they were the, the Vario crew. Um, a lot of them mentioned that, you know, Henry Hill, you know, hit the jackpot that he was, that Ray Liotta did such an amazing job of sanitizing Henry Hill, making him palatable and that he was able to really live off that for the rest of his life. I mean, he got paid for appearances and, became this kind of celebrity off of this depiction of him that wasn't necessarily, I mean, I think the facts were accurate, but the personality was a little bit, a little bit of artistic license. Yeah. Yeah. Ray Liotta's character, Henry was considerably from what I've heard, considerably more likable than Henry. Well, we'll get into the the deep end there in a second, but because that's by the way, that's why Goodfellas works in my opinion. It has to be because he's the he's only like he's the only likable character, even though he's still unredeemable. He's the only character that you kind of feel like has some level of of uh, moral compass, even if it's not at the level of a normal person. It's different than Jimmy and Tommy. And when they murder Billy Bats, yeah. he's got that look on his face like, what yeah. are we doing yeah. here? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's a fair assessment. Although. I like some of the other characters. No, I'm not saying they're not. I like Scorsese's mom was very No, I love them. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying in terms of like someone to root for. Yeah. I I mean, I guess you could root for Tommy and Jimmy too, like the way you root for the bad guys. Yeah, Jimmy's like one of those guys rooting for the bad guys in the movies. But I'm just saying, I think the the connection that the audience felt with Henry, the character, the Ray Liotta character. And at that time, uh, Ray Liotta was a no name. I know they wanted to cast Tom Cruise in it and... Uh, there are a lot of like people that were worried would not have worked. Wouldn't have worked. Tom Cruise. Right. But Scorsese stuck to his guns and, and it was the perfect choice. And he was the and as great as that. I mean, the movie doesn't work without Ray Liotta's performance. So do you feel and, and we're going to get into the character breakdown next? I want to I want to hit one more point, though, as far as the setup of this. It's interesting that this has been used as a recruiting tool unintentionally probably i don't think this is what coppola and scorsese had in mind necessarily but don't we culturally sort of ignore the fact that in virtually all these movies it doesn't end well yeah i mean these guys these guys are drug addicted dead corleone michael corleone dying alone in his chair this is an italian mafia but this is related to the the uh big time drug kingpin world you know one of the best quotes i ever took from white boy rick um, when I was chronicling his story, another shameless self-promotion, go, uh, go to Netflix and uh, check out white boy documentary. 
Uh, I also worked on the Matthew McConaughey movie that I'm not as proud of, but you can watch that too if you want. Um, <laughs> Ringing endorsements. <laughs> this is my worst work, but go check it out. I, I wish I, I, you know, I wish I could sit here five years later and co-sign a $40 million movie that I worked on and say it's the greatest thing in the world. But it's like, be careful what you wish for. It was a nightmare experience. And as a result, the movie was horrible. <laughs> I but, but check it out. I, it's on Netflix. I, I, I no, no. What? No, no. White boy, the docu. I want to be very clear. Yeah. White boy, the documentary is on Netflix, and it's great. Okay. I, it's the greatest thing I've ever done. It's it it went viral on Netflix. It was number four overall on the entire platform for seventy two hours. It was ahead of Black Mirror for a day. Yeah, I mean, it was huge. Yeah. Uh, so I I'm not talking about the documentary on Netflix. The film, White Boy Rick, which I'm not sure if it's on Netflix or not, you can get it on, I'm sure, a number of streaming platforms. That's the one that I'm shitting on. Fair. Just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. The Netflix thing I'm incredibly proud of. So you you feel that there is a little bit of a neglect there with the uh, the downfall aspect. because well, No, so let me always... just, I'm sorry, I lost my point. But my point yeah. was, White Boy Rick said to me, every drug kingpin, and he was around, and he was around all of the major ones in Detroit, and some down in Miami. They were all obsessed with Scarface. And he said to me, obviously, none of these guys waited to the end of the movie because none of them learned from the fact that it, it didn't end well for Tony Montana. So and, and as a result, a lot of the guys that he was talking about that he was surrounded with when he was 17, 18 years old, these big, big, high profile drug kingpins in Detroit uh, that were at that point in their mid to late 20s. A majority of them died violently. It, these are not usual happy endings. Right. I mean, it's just the reality. And it's funny because even I romanticize aspects of this, although I've never dabbled in the mafia. And I, they haven't invited me, let's face it. If I, if I had been invited, maybe I would go. It's like, thy shadows, the mafia, I'm not invited to any of these I things. mean, with Goodfellas, the main but, character, you know, he survives. Uh, yeah. Casino. I mean, he died a few years ago. You know, the, the, the main character dies the way he lived. Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll, let's get into that. Let's start, I, we'll start with Goodfellas because we're going in the chronology. Yeah. So we talked a little bit before about how we're going to handle this. You know, do we get into the, the depths of the story? Do we start with the characters and then get into the story? You and I both thought it'd be better to kind of go character by character and work our way through and then wrap our arms around the story. Mm -hmm. You're obviously the expert and going to do most of the talking here, but I'll set this up. So I wanted to start. I think Henry Hill would have made more sense to some people. I started with who I find the most compelling character in Goodfellas, James Burke. So we have the real versus real. James Burke, Jimmy the, the Gent, that's the real guy, versus the portrayal Robert De Niro is Jimmy Conway in Goodfellas. Probably the best acting performance for my money in that film. He's outstanding. Talk to me, James Burke versus Jimmy Conway, real versus real. How close was that? Portrayal? I mean, identical. And what you saw from De Niro in Goodfellas playing Jimmy the Gent was exactly the way Jimmy the Gent was. Um, and anybody that knows Jimmy the Gent will tell you that. Uh, De Niro nailed it. That's uh, and, and Jimmy Jimmy Burke. You know, he's up there with Meyer Lansky in terms of the most powerful and respected non-Italian members of organized crime. I mean, Lansky's in a level kind of all by himself, but, you know, other than actual mafia dons, 
Jimmy Burke had just as much juice as any made guy, any capo in in, in the Italian mafia. Uh, was which is which is just so I just want to point out yeah. to people that maybe don't understand the inside baseball of this. That's very rare that an Irish uh, soldier or you know he had his own crew. I mean, he was the equivalent of a capo or a captain. I mean, he ran his own you know Roberts the Roberts Lounge crew. Um, which is the guys that pulled off the Lufanza heist, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so, you know, he was given a whole faction of that crime family to oversee. And that, like I said, very rarely happens with non, non-Italians. What did they see in him that they gave that to him? Uh, intelligent and ruthless. And that's a, that's a vicious combination in that world. Um, when you're someone who can be an earner and a killer, Normally families, mafia families are split up amongst one half of the family are earners and one half of the family are killers. Uh, in fact, um, some mafia families have it where, you know, Christmas, the Christmas bonus that's supposed to come every December. If you're an earner, you got to pay that Christmas bonus. If you're a killer, you don't. So there's, you know, they're talking about the left Hansa heist in Goodfellas. Yeah. And, you know, there's a line where Ray Liotta's Henry Hill says, you know, he didn't want to share the the take with them. He he'd rather whack them, and then you see the guy in the freezer truck, and yeah. which really happened. That did that really happen? Yeah, the freezer- How accurate was that portrayal? Well, the free they they again they they conflate some things. So the the character that gets put into the meat locker in the movie is the Frank Carbone character, and Frankie Carbone was a, a wasn't a real person. He was a composite, um, but most people think he was. The majority of that character was based on Angelo Seppi. Um, and Angelo Seppi was murdered, but he was not found hanging on a meat hook. Uh, another mob associate named Richie Eaton uh, was the guy that was found hanging on the meat hook. And that was related to the aftermath of Lufanza when some of the monies were being hidden and washed. They were going to different parts of the country and in this case uh, uh jimmy burke sent a bunch of money down to florida to launder through a, a restaurant and nightclub uh and also through some cocaine deals and he was using tommy uh in the movie it was tommy devito in real life it was tommy de simone and he was using two-gun tommy de simone uh as kind of his point man with this richie eaton another guy named uh, Monteleone and, and a woman named, uh, I think, uh, Ferrara, Teresa Ferrara. And uh, they, they got cute with the money. Um, and they all, they all got killed. Re- Tommy got killed for, for a number of reasons. And we'll get to him. Yeah. Was De Niro's portrayal as this ruthless, I'll kill you just so I get a bigger share of the money, was that accurate? Like, just well, as the, he, the heart he, of him? He, this, uh, this will be a point of reference for people that know the movie. If Stax Edwards doesn't screw up and not get rid of the getaway car like he was supposed to, which is, they show this in the movie. That's exactly what happened. That actually happened. That he, instead of going to get rid of the delivery car, he was supposed to deliver the, the um, getaway car to John Gotti. The, the, the Gotti. <laughs> so Stax Edwards is a real character? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that. Uh, so par- his name was Parnell Stax Edwards. He, he was actually much more of a mob guy than you see in the movie. In the movie, they make it seem like, oh, he was just, um, you know, a, a 
guitar player that used to hang around Robert's lounge. But in reality, he went way back with Tommy. Him and Tommy were like childhood friends. It, but he was actually a black guy, right? A black guy. He was Isn't the only, that rare in the mafia? Yes, very rare. Okay. What would, like, Tommy got him into the back I don't, Yeah, Tommy, you know, vouched for him. And uh, he was more than just like a local musician hanging around the club. He was working scams and doing collections and... Um, just seems like the most, I mean, in the movies they're portrayed as very racist. You know, a Jew oh, yeah, broad prejudice against Italians. That's the best. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> in this day and age, a Jew broad <laughs> yeah. prejudice against Italians. I just, they're always coming off as, you know, there's oh, always are. N-words no, in the are. Bronx tale. Yeah, and, yeah of course. Yes. So this is yes. like pretty rare. Yes, for, yes. I, I assume that was artistic no. license. So Edwards is in charge. Uh, Stax Edwards is supposed to get rid of the getaway car. Instead, he goes to his girlfriend's house. Just like you see in the movie, gets stoned, parks the getaway van in front of a fire hydrant, uh, gets it ticketed, and I think towed. They match fingerprints, and within like three or four days after the heist, everybody's looking at the Robert Lounge crew. I mean, they were already going to be looking at the Robert's Lounge crew because for anything that big that happened at the airport they're immediately going to think Jimmy the gent and his guys. But now they have like physical proof that one of the members of their crew has fingerprints connected to a car that he was assigned to get rid of. So my, my point is if that never happened, I don't know how, you know, fate would have unspooled the fact that Edwards stacks Edwards fucked up so bad to start kind of the second chapter of all of this put Jimmy the gent in a position where then he feels like now I got to kill everybody. So you think Stax Edwards was the first domino yeah. in the, I got to so, sever all ties and right. And the keeping all the money is, is like a bonus <laughs> or not a bonus. It's like a part and partial, I guess. Did I'm he gonna, need have or need approval to kill those people within his own crew? No, because none of those guys other than Tommy, uh, when Tommy wasn't even made, but Tommy had the protection of kind of a made guy. So Tommy was the only one he had to get permission to kill. Did Tommy actually kill Stax like in the movie? Yes. Tommy and Angelo Seppi, who was kind of like Frank Carbone. And in the movie, Frank Carbone and Tommy kill him. But in reality, it was Angelo Seppi and Tommy. And it was. I think it's, it's important to point out in the movie, Tommy couldn't care less that he killed Stax. In real life, it, 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 it ate Tommy up. That was his friend. Yeah. He felt, he felt really bad about it. I mean, he was going to do it because it needed to be done, but it wasn't something that he took pleasure in or was joking. You know, in the movie, he's joking with Carbone. Yeah, take that, you know, Did make it to go. Walk with make it coffee? to go. Yeah, take yeah. that coffee and go. What are you doing? Right. Uh, better chance of letting him drive. Right. <laughs> Tommy is so great yeah. in that one, honestly. Well, let's pivot a little bit to Henry Hill. And Henry Hill was sort of the logical place to start, but I had to, I'm a, I'm a Jimmy the Jank guy. Henry Hill, one of the only guys in here that their, their name just came right over. Mm-hmm. Henry Hill is playing Henry Hill, obviously Ray Liotta. You've talked about the portrayal and how that helped, I don't know, sanitize, boost his resume, clout, whatever. The real Henry Hill, how far of a departure was Ray Liotta's portrayal from the real Henry Hill? Like I said, factually, it was, it was 100% true. He just wasn't anywhere nearly as likable or slick as Ray Liotta. So 
they get the basic facts right. Yeah, he was. But what grew up in that neighborhood? Unlikable. I mean, what? Yeah, nobody the, liked him. Nobody yes. liked him. He wasn't a very likable. Then person. why was he able to penetrate as a non-Italian? He's uh, only half, because right? he got in really early. I mean, just like you see in the movie, he's 11, 12 years old and he's working at the uh, Vario Cruz pizza shop and taxi cab stand and um, started running errands for for Pauly Vario. Uh, at the time, Pauly Vario was. I'm not even sure if he was a captain. At him. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was. But he, he as Henry got older, Pauly's position in the family ascended. Um, you know, by the seventies and early eighties, when Henry flips, the Pauly's top three or four or five guys in that whole family, not just a captain that ran Brooklyn. Does Pauly like the real? So my, my point like is him. I mean, right. So he, that that's my point. He's the one. That's my point. Pauly Vario took a liking to him because he knew him from the time he was eleven or twelve years old, and that's who protected him. A little Bronx tale. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and same with Tom, and same and with same. Tommy. And, you know, well, I'll wait till you ask me about Tommy, but the, the physical appearance of Tommy was totally opposite of what you see in the movie. But outside of the physical appearance, it's it, it's, you know, it, they hit a home run with that portrayal. So they didn't like him. Was there I mean, was there a specific aspect of him? Was he a Weasley guy? Yes. Henry Hill. Yes. Did they not trust him? No, they did not trust him. <laughs> and he eventually did flip on him, but yeah. did he really well, but, yeah, take, Polly, the, take Polly, the bullet for him Polly early had when he was son. a kid, like in the movie? Uh, Never oh, you mean with that? Yeah. Never read on your friends? I, I can't remember. I'm, I, I'm guessing that was, uh, that was true. I, I haven't read Wise Guy, the book that it's based on in a while. Yeah. I don't remember for sure um, if there was actual arrest he took when he was 14 years old or whatnot. Yeah. But he got in, and this is, a, this is another thing that is a, a uh, uh it, it's true in organized crime circles it's a universal truth you could be the most unlikable guy in the world but if you have this if you have one person that's important backing you or supporting you nobody can do anything about it so i mean again it's something that happens quite a bit so with with henry hill he got in good with paul vario and paul vario's brothers um you you, you meet tuddy in the movie and there were, there was a real tutty, but then there was another like four or five brothers. Um, and then he had sons too. You, you see in the, the scene where this is Peter and then Paul and Marie, uh, he did have, uh, Paulie had two sons, Peter and Paul that were also very close with Henry because they were closer to Henry's age. Um, I know they called one of them was called, they, I think Peter, they called him Rugsy. Um, and Jimmy the Gent liked him. So Jimmy the Gent and Pauly Vario had a soft spot for Henry Hill. And that was kind of his, his ticket to kind of act a fool. Was Henry Hill as closely looped in as he's portrayed in the movie? Yeah. yeah. So Be, that's again, a legitimate. Right. Because juice. Right. Because of Pauly and, and Jimmy. Did Jimmy like him? Yeah. Jimmy and Pauly liked him. So Jimmy and Pauly liked him. But again, similar backstories. They kind of mentored him, like you see in the movie, from a young age. They met him when he was 12, 13, 14 years old. Did Paulie like um, Tommy? Paulie liked Tommy until the end. Until the end. So we'll get to him. Let's, yeah. let's, do, let's do Karen first. Yeah. And, and Karen, the Lorraine Bracco portrayal, I, 
I don't know if she gets enough credit. I don't know what your perspective Oh, she was amazing. She was. I mean, that is a 10 out of yeah. 10. That's one of the best. And who, and nobody knew who Lorraine Brocco was before that movie. That was either. her breakout. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she was. She's my honestly, my second favorite acting performance, like just even ahead of Pesci. I, I think De Niro was the best. But the real Karen Hill. How close did Lorraine Brocco's portrayal capture the real? Karen um, I think the stuff you see at the end of the movie where she's like actively involved in what's going on was was more of a, a snapshot of reality than not to say she immediately when they first met was complicit, but she, she had a hustler vibe to her from an early point in time where they kind of make it in the movie like she was um, nice Jewish girl nice Jewish girl that you know pretended not to know what her husband was doing and didn't want to know and I don't know how long that they make it seem like that lasted until when he comes home from prison and starts um, moving the coke and she's helping him at the very last, in the last half hour of the movie or 40 yep. minutes but um, from what I can gather, you know, her and um, Jimmy's wife and uh, were were more active involved in, in things that were going on with that crew than just kind of like nice Italian housewives that were sitting there raising a family. Not to say they didn't do that. They did. But, you know, Karen was a was a almost like a partner in crime. As well as being a, a a a wife. Yeah, I mean the FBI agent says near the yeah. end the witness. Don't give me don't don't, don't give me the don't give me the babe in the, woods, me the, babe routine. In the woods routine, Karen. I've, I've seen you on those wire tape. Yeah. You're talking about cocaine. Yeah. Huh. You can tell we like these yeah. movies. Yeah, don't give me that babe in the woods <laughs> routine, which is one of the great quotes to yeah. use. Like, and that's Ed, and that character is played by the real person, Ed McDonald, oh. who was the guy that actually flipped them. Plays the role of the guy that flips them oh i never knew that yeah. i love that little weird trivia i knew the yeah. tom cruise thing which is just and then they also i I'm, I'm guessing you've seen this i don't know if your audience has uh as ed mcdonald is flipping henry and getting all of the information about lufanza he i don't even say accidentally just blurts out about his involvement in point shaving with the boston college eagles basketball team not even realizing that it was illegal Ed McDonald, who had gone to Boston College and had played basketball at Boston College, was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? You were shaving points at Boston College? And that's actually, that was how they ended up getting Jimmy. And that's, we can go, but they didn't, they, they eventually got Jimmy for some murders that were tied to the fallout of uh, Lufanza. But initially when they put Jimmy in prison, it had nothing to do with Lufanza. It was for the point shaving with Boston College. So, I mean, Karen is, you know, uh, presented as, you know, nice Jewish girl. The dad hasn't digested a decent meal in six weeks. <laughs> the, you know, he's the, not Jewish. Yeah. He's not Jewish. Do you know what these people were like? <laughs> <laughs> Your father never stayed out hours of the night without calling. Such a, there's uh, so many quotable things in <laughs> We could just—I uh, mean, we could just quote to each other. People would be like, "I know, we've heard it." Um, but the salacious piece of information that not a lot of people know is that she was Paulie's side piece. Now, it says who? How sure are you on that? Oh, that's—it's not—it's not a. It's—it's it's like well known. So Paulie was sleeping with Karen. Paulie was sleeping with Karen. Yes. Did Henry know? 
um, he eventually knew. I don't know how long it took him to find out, but. How did Paulie get away with that with the whole, you know, if there's one thing about these Italians, they don't like to sleep with other people's wives. That was a casino line. Right. But how did he get well, away with if that? If you're powerful enough, you can do you can do as I do as I say, not as I do. So Believe you, me, just like I'm talking about guys that nobody likes, but they're protected by other guys, how that's so kind of universal. The whole guy sleeping with other guys' wives, just like the notion or how there's some type of ban on that or the notion that there's some type of ban on nar- narcotics trafficking. Those are all myths. Like in theory. Yes. In practice. No. I mean, you see it in casino too, as you just quoted the, the movie casino. Like, well, yeah, right. but it was a problem in right. that though. That, right, right. that happened. Right. So, so Polly, because Tony or the character, Nikki Santoro, who's real life counterpart with Tony Spilatro, uh, you know, because Tony wasn't as powerful as as Paul Verri. So that's the distinction. That's, yeah, I, I'm fascinated when you say that that Paulie had not just like a like a, like a side piece, like a recurring. It was like his girlfriend, ongoing. Yeah, and then Tommy tried to get in on it too, which is what actually led to Paulie allowing people to kill Tommy. Really? Tell me about that. So Tommy only lasted for. Uh, two weeks maybe after Lufanza. I mean, he was killed within the month. Um, his murder had less to do with Lufanza fallout, like all the others, and more to do with a series of circumstances that coalesced. The final, sh- a series of missteps by him, um, stepping out of line that had been building up, where people had been wanting to kill Tommy for long time most notably john Gotti, and and the whole uh queen's uh, gambino crew um because of what you saw in the movie he killed billy bats so that really happened really happened there was billy bats was a made guy who was very close to john Gotti. with did the shine box exchange happen um i think there was something along those lines not uh, verbatim but one of the big differences was that he wasn't killed that night in the movie, they make it seem like it all happened. What actually happened with the shine the, box going? He shows box. up. Billy Bats is coming home from prison and having a welcome home party. He sees Tommy. He hadn't seen Tommy in 15 years. He's like kissing on Tommy like you see in the movie where uh, Tommy feels like, why are you touching me? Like, I'm not some I'm not a 15 year old anymore. Like now I'm a big deal and you can't just be pawing me and busting my balls in front of everybody, which is what he was doing. Um, and I do believe he made some comment about him previously shining his shoes. And like you see in the movie, they kicked Tommy out of the, the it was called the suite, um, which was Henry Hill's uh, restaurant headquarters. And, but unlike in the movie, he doesn't come back that night and they kill him. Uh, it was like two weeks later and Jimmy, the gent, agrees to lure Billy Bats back there when it's closed and they kill him. So Jimmy the Gent was fully, it wasn't, I, he's kicking him in the movie. Yeah, no. It, he, this yeah. was less, this was more calculated and less impulsive yes. than portrayed. And it was the second member of the Gotti crew that Tommy had allegedly killed without permission. Another guy was named Foxy uh, Girothi, I think his last name was Ron Girothi. They call him Foxy. And he had been killed before Billy Betts. And these were two guys that were close to John Gotti. 
and got it. And just it, Tommy wasn't a made guy at this point. Um, and Gotti kept on going to Vario being like, I want to kill him. And Vario's like, you can't kill him. I don't care if he's not made. He's my guy. So then you have the Rufanza heist, which Tommy took part in and was one of the stick-up guys. Then in the week after Lufanza, like I was mentioning about Richie Eaton, who they found on the meat hook, Jimmy the Gent gives Tommy money to go down to Florida with, to launder, and to put into coke deals. Tommy is having an, uh, a romantic relationship with this woman, Teresa Ferrara. She starts stealing along with these two other guys, Richie, or Richie Eaton and this Monteleone guy. So that's another uh, you know, check in the box of things that are starting to build up against Tommy. Uh, money comes up missing. Even if, even, if, even if it wasn't Tommy, it was people that Tommy was responsible for, including someone he was sleeping with. And then the, the, the ultimate uh, disrespect or what led to Paul Vario allowing the Gotti crew to kill Tommy was that Tommy was with Karen. Um, and I don't know if they were on vacation at a hotel or they were at one of their homes, but Tommy tried to sleep with Karen when Karen was still married to Henry and was Paul Vario's girlfriend. And she tried, wouldn't go along with it, didn't want to sleep with him and tried to fend, fend him off. And he like physically assaulted her. Whoa. And did she and report she that to go, Paulie? And I don't know if she went to Henry first. It eventually makes its way back to Paulie. And at that time, Paulie is like, okay, now this kid has gotten completely out of control. And he just physically assaulted my girlfriend. I'm going to allow the John Gotti crew to, to kill him. Wow. See, I didn't, I had no idea about that. And the See, rumor is that John Gotti actually pulled the trigger. Do you think Paulie was more mad about you're assaulting Henry Hill's wife or you're assaulting my no zombies? my girlfriend? Yeah, it had to do. It was an ego <laughs> thing for Vario. Yeah, well, and I have no idea what I, what I don't know, and I don't want to. I, I wouldn't speculate what how that affected Henry and Tommy's relationship because Henry and Tommy were very close. Tell me about the assassination of Tommy, and and we'll. we'll I want to get into the character in Pesci's portrayal after this, but he's obviously he's walking into the house. He's presumably going to be made. You mentioned there were a number of grievances that they had that led to his death, which Weota says it was revenge for Billy Bats and a lot of things. Yeah. And they don't. You've talked about, I guess, some of those a lot of things. Did that actually happen? How it was portrayed? I don't know if it's again if it, it's like a, a blow by blow of what happened, but it is known that he told his mother who he did live with, uh, that he was going to a ceremony. Uh, the people around him, he had told them that he was going to get made. Paulie told him you're going to get made. And he ended up being ambushed by the Gotti crew instead of getting made. So I don't know if it was exactly like you saw in the movie where he walks into a, a empty room and realizes what's about to happen and says, oh, no, and then they get him in the back of the head. I don't. I just know he showed up. he showed up at a residence thinking he was going to get made and John Gotti and a bunch of killers were there waiting for him. Did they really shoot him in the face so he couldn't have an open casket? I don't, I don't, know, I don't know about that part either. Okay. 
Tell me about the maid ceremony. Is, there, is that a real thing in, yeah. in the mafia? Yes, it's very important. How does it, how does it, what is that, what is an actual mafia made, being made ceremony? Well, look like? now, right now, everybody would be, na- <laughs> literally, everybody would be naked. People would be so paranoid about um, bugs that now the kind of common um, protocol is for making ceremonies that everybody strips down and you do it in your underwear. Really? Yes. Like literally? Yeah, literally. So there are a bunch of guys in their underwear? Yes. This has been more the last 15, 20 years. But, but, uh, how many, how many maid ceremonies, underwear clad maid ceremonies? Well, there was a, there was a pretty famous one that uh, made it into a a court, uh, court document, (laughs) um, with a a New York mafia boss named Vinnie Gorgeous, Vincent Bastiano. They all call him Vinnie Gorgeous. He's kind of like a carbon copy of John Gotti, but didn't, only made it about a year as a boss. And if he had made it five, 10 years, everybody would know who he was. But, uh, but when he took over, he was, you know, rightfully concerned of record, you know, people recording and, you know, all of his making ceremonies, you know, everybody's stripping down. Take me to the seventies then. What, so, so what, the 70s, what was it like? So in the seventies, so they open the books up in 75, 76 and they start ushering in, you know, hundreds, dozens, hundreds of, of people into the five families. And at that point, they were probably happening once a month, once every couple months. And uh, pick, a, pick a location, usually either a private residence or the back of a restaurant, back of a barbershop, uh, banquet halls, hotel rooms, hotel uh, suites. And you are promoted or I should say it's not promoted proposed you are proposed by a sponsor um the boss the underboss and the conciliary are normally there sitting at a table in the front of the room and there's a gun and a knife and a picture of a, a saint cards and they usually take people down one by one and your sponsor they'll, they'll put the guys that are the new inductees like into a room, let's say upstairs, or if it's in a restaurant in another part of the restaurant, and then they'll bring them in one by one. Their sponsor will bring them in and the, whoever's conducting the ceremony. Um, sometimes the boss doesn't conduct it. He'll just talk. And then the underboss will actually, or the conciliary will actually cut your finger and light uh, a St. Card on fire. And you put it in your hands and you, you recite, you know, if, uh, you know, if I portray this family, let me burn like the St. Cards burning in my hands right now. Um, and normally uh, to start a meeting like that before the inductees come, everybody goes around a circle and holds hands. And then they break the circle, do the making ceremony. And then let's say there's five new inductees. The five new inductees then link up with the rest of them, they all hold hands in a circle. They make some type of Sicilian prayer, and then they're officially member of the family. They're given the set of rules. They're assigned to a crew and a captain, and then they usually go out and celebrate. Is it a license to kill, like we always yes. says? I mean, license they, to do anything. They, yeah, I mean that was more true in the in, in the twentieth century. Now, and I've talked about it on my podcast and other. Shameless promoter and original gangsters podcast uh, on YouTube and on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, wherever you can get it, uh, audio. But uh, they, the mafia doesn't really kill people anymore. I mean, you had a situation 
or you had, you know, kind of, um, if you're, if you, if you want to compare numbers, just, let's just, just say the 1980s, 70s or 80s. I mean, you had just in New York city, hundreds of, of mob related killings, hundreds, um, in the 23 years since the turn of the century, there, there's been maybe 10, 15 mafia murders in the whole country. Murder was illegal in both decades. Is it just advancements different, in yeah, different investigation? Ways of doing, no, different ways of doing business. You know, uh, self, well, self, self, self a minor distinction. Self-preservation. You know, but it was illegal then. Right. But now there. Is it just it's always been a, it's, it's just better it's just better ways of doing business now guys are like you know if you don't pay your debt you're not going to get killed you're just going to get cut off or you get booted out of town or you're going to get a beating but so they'll, the still heat, knock, they'll knock you around a yeah bit. but the heat that comes from murders i mean you have to really really press the envelope to get hit um you know and one of the last big I'm going to tie this all back together. One of the last big New York mafia murders, and it happened within the same crime family we're talking about, the Lucchese crime family, was related partially to affairs of the heart. You know, a guy was sleeping with a guy's wife when he, or sleeping with a guy's girlfriend when he shouldn't have been, um, as well as not paying back some money. And it was a guy that he had once been friends with, very close friends with. And over the years, the one guy went from kind of the superior uh, to the um, subordinate, had a hard time accepting that. And the former subordinate who had become the superior ordered the murder of, you know, his former boss who wasn't Italian. Jimmy the Jen is portrayed as very upset, slamming the phone in the phone booth when he hears, you know, there's nothing we could do about it. About Tommy. About Tommy's... Yeah effectively assassination at yeah. his purported being made ceremony. Right. You said Jimmy the Gent was about as juiced up and respected as you could get. Was he actually upset at that assassination? I, I don't know if he broke down crying the way they showed it. He did not film. like it though. Yeah, but he was he was a he was disturbed by it, yes. But obviously beneath Paulie. But he didn't he couldn't do anything about it. Just like the, you know, he, Henry Hill says it. We could just, we just we had to sit there and take it. So that was an accurate portrayal. Yeah. They really just as, had the as much as Jimmy the Gent had juice more than most mob guys. That's something he had no control over because Paulie Trump Jimmy. Do you think he went up to Paulie one time and said, "Come on, bro"? Like, I, get, I mean, where's the line with the well, disrespect there? I it, mean, for all I know, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know the the granulars, but it's possible that Jimmy did go to Paulie before the murder and tried to campaign for uh, for Tommy not being killed. Do you think but it wouldn't I mean obviously he probably he probably didn't see it coming in the movie he didn't see it coming. Right, I'm saying in the movie the the Jimmy the Gen character doesn't know that it's going to happen. Do you think I'm saying in I'm saying in reality he could have and he could have gone to Paulie and tried to yeah. convince him otherwise and it just didn't happen. Do you think that was a a shock wave for that family in the real life version of this when he was assassinated no because tommy wasn't really that big of a deal in the realm of the sh of the new york mafia now he which died is what, at what 28 i'm not sure how old he, he was. was in his late 20 i mean he's older in the movie 
Okay. The but, real, and, and in real life, he was big. He was, but. and he was big. I mean, he wasn't tiny. He was like a strapping six. Well, let's go to him. Yeah, Ben, can you throw up the? And um, I know we're skipping Paul. We'll get back to Paul. I throw up a uh, Tommy Thomas D Simone, aka Two Gun Tommy. Yeah, there's Two Gun Tommy. He he kind of looks like a '70s bodybuilder version of Pesci. I don't know. I'm not saying. No, I'm just saying. I'm saying Joe Pesci's like five three. No, <laughs> yeah, that was an uh, extreme. Tommy D Simone was like six three and was like a, He's bra- a big bra- guy. brawny. So he died. He died at 28. I was I okay. was correct. That's that's pretty young. Yeah, and he had a uh, mafia pedigree. His uncle or his cousin had been the mafia boss of Los Angeles. Frank De Simone is 28 young to be made. In my head, you're like 45. Uh, yes, it, it, getting made in your 20s again, right after the books got opened, you did have some younger guys getting made because they were making everybody at that point. Um, I would say. You know, in this day and age or the last 30, 40 years, like, yeah, getting made in your 20s is probably the exception to the rule. So you, you once they opened the books, you said the numbers went way up. How up are we talking? 40% of the people are made running around? 20%? 80%? What, what are we talking about here? Uh, like, how, how high of a distinction is it? Because when I found out he was 28, I'm like, man, that didn't raise alarm bells. They were making you at 28. I would have thought for sure I was walking into my ambush. But I don't well, know not if you're no, well, not if you were Tommy D and you were some or Two Gun Tommy who you said he wasn't that juiced up though. He you got to understand how these are these are like you know Fortune 500 companies. I mean, these are big organizations where the guys in the in Brooklyn don't necessarily know what the guys in Queens are doing, and the guys in Queens don't necessarily know what the guys in Manhattan are doing. Uh, you could be part of an organization and literally not know a lot of members of that organization. So I'm saying is like the only reason people talk about two gun, Tommy D Simone being murdered now is because he was a character in Goodfellas. It, it would not have raised, you know, it would not have moved the needle at all in the world of day-to-day mafia functioning in New York in 1979 when he was killed or 1978 when he was killed. You said, De Niro nailed Jimmy the Gent. Ray Liotta, the facts were right, but the spirit of it wasn't. Where does Joe Pesci's portrayal uh, yeah, land? You, you, you just like, it's a, no pun intended, but like those acting performances were just like a murderer's row. Like, you know, 1927 Yankees. And everybody came up there and hit a grand slam. I mean, Joe Pesci's performance was iconic. It was iconic for a reason. Um, the famous, you know, how am I funny scene? It's a great story of how that scene came to be. Cause that was not written in the screenplay. Yeah. I've uh, heard that one. Uh, Joe Pesci was as a young man connected uh, to mob guys, not wasn't a mobster himself, but was a musician who was tied into the four seasons and all that stuff that was going on with Frankie Valley. And um, he had witnessed, a, a similar situation at a bar when he was a younger guy with uh, a guy that uh, kind of looked after him, uh, you know, a mob guy that kind of looked after him who had a hair trigger temper and a personality that people could never gauge whether or not he was serious or psychotic. And this guy kind of knew it 
and played on it a little bit. And there was a actual back and forth at a nightclub that he witnessed that he told Scorsese about, and they kind of wrote that scene on the fly. And a lot of it was Pesci ad-libbing what, what he had had witnessed, you know, 20 years before that. I heard like Leona and some of the other actors, if not all of them, like didn't even know he was going to do that. Right. Is that your understanding too? Yeah. That's just wild. It makes that scene even better. Yeah. Yeah. There's a point, and there's an entire YouTube video on this, and I'm not intentionally omitting the guy's name. I'll, I'll credit him in a post edit. But he has this whole theory about this one line that Pesci drops on him where he says, he, he looks to Leota in that scene and says, Henry Hill, and says, you're supposed to be doing this stuff too, mm-hmm. you know. And this guy's whole theory was that they were intentionally supposed to be making a scene and that, you know, and breaking bottles and he just, he just I think he was just saying you're supposed to be acting like a gangster too so you you don't buy this guy's theory that that was that Leota was supposed to be or Henry Hill was supposed to be making a scene to I can't remember his exact theory he was trying to set up the the bar owner or something he had some see I don't know if in the movie they, they it it's it's came out like there was a beef between the owner of the bamboo lounge and Tommy, I don't know if that's true, but there was a real gangster named, I don't know what his real name was, but his name was Sonny. They called him Sonny Bamboo and he owned the Bamboo Lounge. Um, and the Bamboo Lounge was torched, just like you see in the film. Uh, in the movie, I think the character w- was named Sonny Buns. And that actor ended up going to play in The Sopranos. He played Larry Boy. Um, Barisi in The Sopranos, is that his name is Tony Darrow, the actor. But uh, there, there was a real bamboo lounge and a real owner, a real owner named Sonny. Now I don't know again if Sonny and Tommy had some beef where Tommy broke a glass over his head. Was the Pesci portrayal? We know the acting performance was great. Yeah. Was it true to the real? Yeah, he person? was. He was loony. And when I, not to to segue too quickly, but. When I watched, before I knew the real stories, when I watched Casino for the first time, I walked out of it saying, Pesci just played his Tommy character in Vegas with a Chicago accent. But then I, but he, he, both of those characters were, you know, completely maniacal and unhinged. And he, played both of them perfectly but the the possible perception that the Nikki Santoro character was a rip off of the Tommy D character is is not true even though it might look like that could have been the case and that's a common observation oh yeah. he's just replaying right. Tommy yeah and that I've heard that repeatedly yeah, yeah. and I I you know it's not unfair if you don't know what you just right, said right. if you don't know the background of it if they're both nuts, they're both nuts. What right. are you going to do? You, you know, know the, I guess the difference is if we're talking about physical appearances, Tony Spilatro and Joe Pesci uh, dressed up as Nicky Santoro were almost identical. And Tony Spilatro was a tiny five foot three, five foot four. Uh, the nickname was the ant. Right. Yeah. So you, you give Pesci uh, an A plus as the, um, you're throwing casino up there. Yeah, that's a. 
we're gonna do the deeper dive on Casino later, but that's it's good to get it up there. And he actually like, really looks like him there. That's he actually looks like Tony the Ant. So you're you're a fan of the Pesci portrayal. I want to finish in terms of the character breakdown with Goodfellas with Pauly. We've talked about him. He's come up a lot. He's Pauly is portrayed in Goodfellas as stoic, thoughtful, calculating, measured, empathetic. You know, hands him the wad of crumpled up money and. You know, I'm going to turn my back on you. Was that the real Paul Vario? I think it was like 80%. Eight? 80. 80. 80%. Okay. Uh, f- from people I've spoken to that knew Paul Vario said that he could fly off the handle more than you saw Paul Servino. Like you said, he, he played it more stoic. You never really hear him raise his voice. Um. You see him get mad at Henry uh, in that was another great scene where he takes him after he gets out of prison and takes him in the backyard and says, you know, stay away from the garbage. You know, I'm not going to die in prison like Gribbs. Yep. Gribbs got 75 years for just talking to some jerk off that was going around selling junk. Pie. And that's true. Mr. Gribbs, whose name's uh, Carmine Tremonte, was, you know, Paul Vario took Gribbs's spot. Um, and Gribbs got died in prison because one of his soldiers was selling heroin. Um, and whether Gribbs knew about it or not, I don't know. But that interaction, I mean, I, I that I loved hearing that when I learned that. I was like, oh, Gribbs, that's a real person. Like I thought that was just saying I just threw a name out there. So did Henry Hill really testify against Paul Verio? Yeah. And that did and Jimmy, he landed in Burke. prison. He died in prison. Jimmy Burke and, and Paul Vary both died in prison because of Henry Hill. I know he's portrayed as, and I believe it is the true story, that Henry Hill goes into witness protection. But we saw him. He's given speeches at colleges before he passed mm-hmm. away. Uh, why, what, why was that a thing? Wasn't he still in some fear of, he put some powerful, powerful Yeah, but again, it's just, it's, I'm not trying to di- diminish a legitimate fear for safety but things that have gone on in the last 25 30 years it it's it's an era all of its own he would not my point is if henry if henry hill wouldn't have been able to do that in the 60s or 70s or even 80s he's able to do that in the 90s and 2000s because it's a different era because no one was going to risk their own freedom by taking out a, frankly, a nobody like Henry Hill, even if he ended up putting uh, Vario and, and Jimmy Burke behind bars, the only people that would have a true vendetta would be the Pauly's family. I mean, Jimmy the Gent doesn't, Jimmy the Gent's kid got whacked too, uh, Frankie. But, you know, there are members of the Varios that are still around. And in theory, they could have had an issue with him. But other than them, nobody cared enough. Do you, do you think Henry Hill gets whacked if he doesn't? Turn on them first? Yes, without question. And I want to tell another interesting anecdote that kind of, it's like a lost piece of this history that I didn't know until recently in the last couple of years. Henry Hill, and you do see this in the movie, when he goes down, he doesn't get busted by the feds. He got busted by the state authorities on a drug case out of Long Island, out of Suffolk County, um, which then... a Open the door for him flipping on the feds. But the Suffolk County case, 
And if you remember, you know, he's, he needs to, his babysitter Lois needs to go get her hat. So he jumps in the car and then you hear the cop, you put, turn off the engine, you motherfucker. I'm going to blow your fucking head off. And he's like, I thought I was dead. And then I realized the only cops talk like that. You know, if it was a wise guy, you wouldn't hear anything. You just be. Yep. And that entire bust could be traced to an 18 year old kid that had been Henry Hill's lawn boy. A guy that was doing landscaping for Henry Hill and Karen in their house. In How'd that happen? He was a son of a guy that was in their crew. So it was a mobster son. And Henry Hill was dealing a lot of drugs at the very end of his mob career. And he was using this. I think he met the kid when he was 16 or 17. And he started using the kid to sell drugs at local high schools and then eventually local colleges. Um, and when you see the scene at the diner, the last time Jimmy and Henry are together, and he says, he read you all out. I want you to go down to Florida and find this kid. I would have never come back from that yeah. meeting alive. Right. The guy that he's saying they want to kill is the 18-year-old kid. Oh, so that, that's true. And then they eventually kill him. They killed the kid. They killed the kid, 18 years old, May of 1980. So Henry Hill really did know. Um, so, I mean, so Henry, so Henry Hill got arrested, down. and then this guy got killed a couple weeks later, the kid, the 18-year-old kid. Does that not make, because I've read on, you know, the message board Reddit take is Henry Hill's a rat. But if you know they're going to kill you, yeah. you, you're being you betrayed, you're being, me, you betrayed you're being, me first. You're being pragmatic. But you, bet, you betrayed me. I, I just, you know, took my only option. Because what am I going to do? I'm not going to go to war. Yeah. But you got to you got to realize at that time, again, that everything's context. Is Henry Hill at, a rat? At, the, at that, yeah. Yes, he is. But, so, oh, so you think you're going yeah, with the, you're, but, you're, you're but, the Reddit guy. But, again, you have to, in some ways, you got to tip your hat to the guy because doing what he did at that time, now everybody flips. Anybody gets in trouble, they flip now. The floodgates really opened uh, after Sammy the Bull you know, in, the, in the early 90s. Well, they stopped killing. If you kill, you won't right. have that problem. Um, well, they probably, they were still killing people then, and then maybe 10 years later they stopped killing. But yeah. the, the point is when Henry Hill flipped, there weren't a lot of cooperators. So it was a, it was a very ballsy thing to do. I mean, but yeah, yeah, he was it would have been ballsy not to, yeah. to flip and, you know. He was going down. I mean, they were going to kill him or he's going to die in prison, right? I don't know. I, I don't think he's a rat. If you know and you've confirmed, he knew I'm going down. They're going to kill me. They betrayed him first. So that, that fights against the he's yeah, a rat. He, he turned against them. They right. turned against him. But he also knew that he wasn't supposed to be doing what he was doing. He wasn't sharing the proceeds from this drug operation that he was running with Jimmy and those guys. Is that why they wanted to kill him? One of the reasons. That he knew, yeah. he knew when that came out, everybody was like, wait, wait, what? What? You were moving drugs back and forth from Florida with this teenager and moving all these drugs off in the Long Island suburbs and us out in Brooklyn, we're not seeing any of it. <laughs> the most compelling, unanswerable question from either of the Scorsese entries into this genre, and I know there's the Irishman, I don't, which I don't count. Karen, 
walking down the alley. Yeah, I don't know if that really happened either. It's a great scene. That's not true. I don't know. I mean, it might have. But was she? I mean, she's alive now. Yeah. So obviously they didn't whack her. Do you think whether it was manifested like that scene was, was she ever in danger of getting whacked herself? Do you feel? I, I don't think so because of Polly. So she was without Polly, maybe. Okay, let's talk about cinematically, artistically. Take off the expert hat. Just put on your you're watching the movie. He's gonna yeah, he's gonna kill her. You right. yes, I, it's yeah. I this agree is with that. a polarizing yeah. subject. It is no, like fifty fifty. No, I believe he was gonna kill her. That's why there was a guy back there. Well, yeah. Well, he maybe was he was to handing her the, the blouse. He was gonna yeah, sell her. The, right. Was it a coat or a blouse or whatever yeah. it was? Just De Niro. He was killing everybody. He like like Henry said. He was cutting all ties. And she was still a tie to cut. Do women get whacked like that in that world back then? Well, Teresa Ferrara got clipped. I mean, there's exceptions, but that's pretty rare, right? Because there's not, a lot right, of spouses it, that know stuff. Yeah, but we're talking about Goodfellas right here. Two of these murders were, were, were connected, or I should say three of these murders were involving women. So Teresa Ferrara got killed. Angelo Seppi, when he was killed, he was killed with his girlfriend. And just like you see in the film, uh, I think in the film, he's, he's Johnny roast beef, but in real life, he was Frankie roast beef. You know, Frankie roast beef was running around with a pink Cadillac, uh, acting like he had no cares in the world. When everybody is law enforcement wise, looking at the Jimmy, the Gent crew and they killed him and his wife. But it's in his mother's name. It's in his, it was in my mother-in-law's name. Yeah, mother-in-law. Thank you. Yeah. It's in my mother-in-law's That's name. another one. That's one of the Are most under, one of the most underrated scenes. It's so great. What's the matter with you? And then Carbone wa walks in with his wife in a mink coat. Yeah, <laughs> get it out of here. You, you might as well wear a sign. I love that with uh him and his wife are whacked in the pink Cadillac. It still has like the MSRP mm -hmm. sticker on it. But those are but so that, those are three women that got caught in the crosshairs here. So the so pink Cadillac not, not, thing actually that happened? actually happened. Yeah, and uh, it, it, to your to your question, I mean, it's not normally they're not going to kill women, but it believe me, they're not opposed to killing women. There's no code against it, and especially if they think that that woman knows. Stuff that she shouldn't know. So with the case of Frankie Roast Beef, who had been a cellmate of Jimmy the Gent in a prison sentence, that's how he got kind of brought into the into their crew. Yeah. Um, he Jimmy the Gent felt that Frankie Roast Beef's wife, I think her name was Joanna, that he was sharing too much with her, that she knew too much about their business. So if, especially if that's a factor there. They're, they're going to, if you're a, and I can think of a handful of instances in various parts of the country where a guy got his wife or girlfriend killed because he was involving that woman in things that he shouldn't have been involving her. Is Maury's wigs guy a real guy? Yes. Marty, really? Marty Krugman, Marty the Rug. <laughs> Is that why they called him the Rug? Yeah, Marty the Rug Krugman. <laughs> it was called, for I think it was called For Men Only or... For men's only, I think was the name of the 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 shop. You got the, enough the money for shop. that fucking commercial. Yeah. So and, and tell me whole, about him. He's a real guy. He's a real guy. And the whole Lufanza heist did spawn from him. Um a guy that worked at the airport, a guy named Lou Werner, was someone who bet with, you know, Maury or Marty in real life 
uh, was a a criminal uh, who also owned a wig shop, but he booked bets. In the movie, you just look like he's making bets, but in reality, he was a uh, was a bookie. And uh, Lou Werner, who worked at the airport, owed Marty Krugman twenty five k, which is the equivalent of a like hundred thousand today. And in order to make good on the debt, he gave him the tip of the uh, Lufanza cargo terminal bringing in all this cash, which and they thought was going to be two million. It turned out to be six, which is an absurd amount yeah. now with inflation. Yeah. I mean, I thought the estimate was what about twenty million today or yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. So did they actually whack him because he yes. wouldn't shut the fuck up? Yes. That, they, so that's just there's nothing to that, add to that. That's nope. just how it happened. Yep. It's incredible how much of this shit actually is true. Yeah, yeah. And then to bring it into modern times, five years ago, I want to say, they brought charges in Lufanza heist against a guy named Vinny Asaro who had been... So back then, every mob family had a crew at, that was in charge of the airport or was in charge of that family's activities at the airport. So when this heist goes down, you're, in theory, walking on other people's territory, so you have to grease them. So part of the monies from the take had to be spread around to the other crime families. And Vinny Asaro was the Bonanno crime family's representative for the airport, so he allegedly helped... uh, Fence some of the jewelry, hide some of the money, and they found a way to charge him with it uh, in addition to a murder case that he was involved in with, allegedly with Jimmy the Gent, in like 2017 or 18, and he beat the case. And there's, so there's only been one person actually convicted of Lufanza. And this was and a few was, years ago, sorry. This was a couple years ago, like 18, maybe 2018. And he, he went, he's in prison now? No, no, he beat the case. Oh, he beat it. He beat the case. So you said before we were talking off air that this is still kind of the the Goodfellas story is still kind of going. That's on. how. That's what I meant. That's what that yeah. was the case that, you were that, talking that about. They brought this case in the 2010s. Um, only one person has actually been convicted of Lufanza. It was Lou Werner was was convicted of orchestrating or sparking the flame that became Lufanza. So that's not why. Henry Hill testified against Paul. Ian. No, it had nothing to do with Lufanza. <laughs> that was the most yeah. iconic crime. I mean, it right. was the most meaningful crime. Obviously, it's not murder. Yeah, Paul and Jimmy did not go to prison for Lufanza. What were their charges? Racketeering and murder. Okay. Jimmy actually went to, one of the reasons Jimmy went to prison for life was for the Meehook murder, which was, again, was not directly related, but tangentially i've talked with my friend chris castellani about the greatest scenes in movie history and and my favorite is from it's and not even that it's the greatest although i could make the argument my personal favorite scene in the history of cinema is from the godfather michael Vito in the garden of the corleone house right before he passes and you know it could be anybody you know that's that that's my number one somewhere in the top five is Henry on the first date, the first real date, non-double date, walking through the club? Oh, it's with considered like you know one of the all-time classic it's movie scenes, and, and it's for people that are 
cinephiles and for people that are actually like in the business in terms of lighting and sound and the way a shot is set up, stuff that, you know, regular people don't probably pay attention to. That was as like groundbreaking as almost any kind of movie shot, if you will, the one shot, you know, following it, that and the scene where he's introducing everybody at the lounge. Yeah. He walks in and he's, t- those two scenes are considered like, you know, in terms of shooting movies, it was like, it was like before those scenes and after those scenes that like it opened up a whole uh, new way for, for directors to tell stories. The, the tracking the shot tracking in that shot. is, is fantastic yeah. and, and unrivaled, I think. It's a top five scene in the history of cinema, I would argue. And I, I also should point out that the scene where he's introducing uh, the first part of the movie where he's going around and the, the, the camera's hitting the faces of the different members of the crew and he's, yeah. he's introducing all those guys, 95% of those guys were real people. That's a great time to like, kind of rope them in too yeah. when you're going through like, yeah. the list. So like Jimmy Two Times, his name wasn't really Jimmy Two Times. It was Johnny Echoes. But it was the same. <laughs> yeah. A typical like yeah. Scorsese little right. twist. But the reason I bring up the scene, other than just the fact that I love it and I could watch it a thousand times, that tracking scene, they're walking through, you know, what do you do? You don't look like you feel like you're in construction and, you know, don't you work? It's Leota nails it. Wayne Bracco nails it. It's expert peak Scorsese. It's arguably the best Scorsese scene ever in terms of the execution. is the it. perfect movie, in my opinion. It, well, I actually like Casino a little more, but it's. I didn't say I didn't say I like Goodfellas better than Casino. I said it's the perfect. Movie. Well, that's actually a good closing topic at the very end. I'll try yeah. not to forget that one. I, I'm I'm in the rare camp. It's it's like thirty. You can, argue, you can argue that to me. I'm it's, not. Gonna it's say oh, it's close. I, I'm not like a pound the table. In the right mood, maybe I would argue the other way. I'm a slight edge to Casino, but that scene, that tracking scene, walking through the club, is so iconic. The reason I bring it up, I'm curious. Is that the correct, accurate, in the spirit of a mobbed up, powerful guy vibe? Is that real? In where maybe they're not literally cutting through the kitchen, but where they show up at yeah. some bar, are they really that big of a celebrity? Yes, yes. that especially, was accurate, especially at the Copa, which that was. So that was a true that. portrayal. Yeah, those guys, you know, Red Sea parted for these guys. It still does. I see it. I see it with my own eyes, even now. Yeah. But they're not, they don't have any juice now. I guess it depends on how you define juice and it depends on where you are and who you're with. I consider but. juice cutting through and, and they, they bring out a table for you and you're cutting the yeah. line. To me, that's juice. Yeah. I mean, that's Brian Masalam at any Michigan State event. They bring out the <laughs> table for him and they fan him like he's an Egyptian pharaoh. <laughs> but for most people, if your name's not Brian Masalam and you're not going through East Lansing, that's, that's a atypical experience so that was true that he would even if that exact thing didn't happen yeah him coming in or jimmy the gent coming in they would have that sort of part the red yeah. sea i would have sworn sure. you would say that was artistic license i'm actually fascinated no, by that especially then especially in the 1960s one of the five best scenes ever though yeah i love even more that that's like an actual you know true roses are red yeah. <laughs> there's so many good scenes in that in that club too it's just it goes and pesci has so many good ones in there so yeah let's let's i'll throw it to you here before we transition overall percent wise they captured that story pretty well in goodfellas yeah and i also want to i think it's important 
to note in terms of mob storytelling to point out the difference between the Godfather and Goodfellas or the, the, the big mob movies that came before Goodfellas, they were always about big time, powerful people, Don Corleone, Tony Montana. Um, Goodfellas was great because for the most part, it's about the low level guys. And other than Paulie, nobody's made in that crew that you see. None of those guys are actually members of the mafia. They're all associates. Yeah, Paulie's in there. He's on the movie poster. He's only actually in the movie for like 11 minutes. Right. So my point is like, that's why it was so brilliant. And that's why it connected with so many people because it was showing like the grunts. And it's still glamorous as a grunt, but th- this it's showing the minutia. And accurately so, yeah, you would right. argue. Yeah. Is there anything you want to add in Goodfellas before we move to Casino? Nope. And we'll, we'll wrap at the end with the kind of combining the two. But Casino, again, we'll finish later with why I think Casino is just a little bit better. And Casino is happening or fallout from what you saw in that movie is happening today in 2023 in real time. Why is Casino, the story of Casino, still happening now? Because over the last 15 months, the water level on Lake Mead, which is the uh, biggest body of water in Nevada, has been precipitously dipping and bodies are surfacing. And a number of these bodies are believed by investigators to tie back to the casino era, the Tony Spilatro rain, uh, bloody rain over Vegas between 1971 and 1986. So, and possibly some murders that you see take place in the movie um, are potentially being resolved uh, now in the 2020s. Is there anybody with a pulse today that might be implicated by something they find there? Yes. Anything you can talk about? Yeah, well, well, right now there's a guy who um, was a very close friend and lieutenant of Tony Spilatro. Again, in the movie, he's Nicky Santoro, but in real life, he's Tony Spilatro. And he's named Pauly the Indian, uh, Paul Shiro, who goes by Pauly the Indian. And uh, recently got out of prison. He's in his 80s. And if they identify one of these bodies as someone they think it might be, uh, Shiro is a suspect. And if they were inclined to indict an 80-something-year-old person for murder, and it, he, he has exposure here. And, uh, you know, just in Massachusetts a couple years ago, they indicted an 85-year-old guy, pulled him out of witness protection after 20 years and hit him with a cold case murder, died in prison a couple months ago. So it's not beyond the the realm of possibility. So yes, at least one person, if not more, has some legal exposure with these bodies servicing. And you have a lot of FBI contacts. You've interviewed a number of FBI agents in the course of your work. We've talked about it in the past, in the first episode with Mm -hmm. you with Hoffa. What is their appetite to chase this stuff down? Well, in Las Vegas right now, it's voracious. This is something that has a lot of eyeballs on it and a lot of um, 
pressure uh, being applied uh, by higher ups in law enforcement to try to put to bed some of these cold case murders, missing person cases tied to this very, very infamous period of, of that city's history. And I know that there are people in Clark County as well as uh, Clark County Sheriff's Department, as well as federal investigators out there that are right now working around the clock on these cold case murders that they think they could solve based on we've, we've had like over half a dozen bodies that have uh, surfaced. And according to environmental experts, you're going to have dozens more uh, reach the surface in the, over the next couple of years. I'm fascinated by that because in the Scorsese portrayal, and maybe that was his perception, it's buttoned up. It's in the end, we fucked it all up. And now yeah. you're, you're lucky if you get room service by Tuesday and it's the MGM Grand Lion yeah. and the Treasure Island shit and all that. Like the, the Scorsese's portrayal is this was the story. It's closed now. You're saying the casino story I'm is saying, still wide open. I'm saying some of the murders that you see happen, those bodies have never been found. Specifically, the murder of the character in the movie, it's John Nance. He's the guy that's in charge of the count room who they find out in Costa Rica. Again, that's kind of they're com- conflating a bunch of facts. Um, in real life, John Nance is... Uh, Real life counterpart was a guy named Jay Vandermark, and Vandermark disappeared. Nobody's ever seen Vandermark since 1976. So, in the movie, he dies in the swimming pool. In real life, a guy named Jerry Listener died in the swimming pool, and John Nance disappeared, or Jay Vandermark disappeared. And that's the body, the first body to pop up was uh, found in a barrel, like a rusted barrel and had two bullets in the back of his head or back of her head, I guess. I think it's, they've established it's a male back of his. Um, and Jay Vandermark is one of the people they're trying to connect to that body as well as another guy named John Paginio Tacos who went by the Nick, went by the alias Johnny Pappas. And they both disappeared in a couple week period of 1976, right after you see in the movie when they raid the casino. Yep. So right after they raid the casino, two people uh, disappeared. I was drinking Miller Lights and rolling rocks with my buddies in college and watching Casino one night, and I had a, a take that they did not like. I said that Sam Ace Rothstein was my favorite character in any Scorsese film ever, including Goodfellas. And I love Jimmy the Gent, and I talked about both my favorite characters are De Niro's characters in both. I want an equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. I love him. <laughs> and my, my, dad, my dad actually would use him because he loves these movies too. So I'd be watching these with him. He would use Sam as sort of a role model, not entirely, preferably, hey, man, have better taste than women in particular. But he would tell me, you know, watch how he handles things seriously and watch how particular he is and watch how he runs things and he's on top of things and my dad was and is an entrepreneur and mm-hmm. started his own business and he worshipped Sam and I worship my dad so I kind of worship Sam by proxy Sam Ace, Ace Rothstein 
not the real guy's name, then throw up our side-by-side. It's Lefty Rosenthal. Frank Lefty Rosenthal. Actually Jewish as portrayed in the movie, right? So how close are we with the portrayal Sam Ross scene? De Niro nailed the gent. How much sort of overlap is here, fact versus fiction? Identical. Identical again. The only... And it's a pretty big difference, I guess. But they, the, the, this is stuff that they didn't know at the time of making the movie. It didn't come out until after Lefty Rosenthal died. But in reality, during that entire time period, Lefty Rosenthal was a confidential informant and feeding information to the FBI on uh, Tony Spilatro. So you didn't see that part where he was playing both sides. That completely changes everything. Right. But, in, but other than that, the character was on point. So he what was he that brilliant of a of a guy that sharp that he played I mean the, the smartest guys in the world of organized crime play both sides of the fence. He's portrayed as this brilliant sports he was one of he's one of the all-time in, in the world of underworld gambling he is a legend's legend. So he, that was all legitimate. Yeah. And him and Tony grew up or Nikki in the movie, Tony in real life, grew up together in Chicago. Tony was his muscle. Uh, Lefty Rosenthal was a golden boy for the Italian mob bosses in Chicago. They loved him because he made them so much money and told them who to bet on because <laughs> some of them were degenerate gamblers, like you see in with the, the Remo character, who is a composite, but it's based on Joey, Joey Dove's Iupa. Um, but uh, everything you see in terms of his anal retentive nature of, or his meticulous nature of running that casino was 100% accurate. And uh, they, they act, the sign that you see in his office behind him that has like a giant no and a very little yes, that was actually from uh, Lefty Rosenthal's office. Lefty Rosenthal gave it to him. Is it the actual one? Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's incredible, actually. He, so Lefty Rosenthal wanted to have nothing to do with the production until he found out that De Niro was involved. Damn. And then he came running to them. Oh, so would I. Yeah. Maybe the and best he, actor he, ever. Right, and then he coached De Niro on how to play him. So he was involved with De Niro's portrayal yeah. directly. Yeah. And so was the character of Frank Marino played by Frank Vincent, who was also in The Sopranos, was Billy Bats and Goodfellas. Yeah, recently passed. Recently passed. Uh, Frank Marino is based on Frank Collada, who was Tony Spilatro's right hand. And he was the main, him and uh, Lefty were the main technical consultants on set. So he was informing against the ant. Lefty was informing on everybody. All the mobsters in even all the mob oh, the in Chicago. Too. All the mobsters in Chicago. Yeah. Did, they, did they know that? Nobody knew it until he died. Five, so he, however, well, he took it know. to the he took it to the grave. Yeah, nobody knew. How did that come out? Uh, some newspaper broke it in the couple weeks after Rosenthal died. Did got it, tipped off? Did any arrest result as his? Uh, did any well, arrest come as a result of his informing? I, I would say definitely, but nothing where he had to like testify. I, I never knew that. And I've read about yeah. the background on it. So it would be called, you know, a dry snitch is, a, is the term they use in the underworld. It is somebody that informs and is given preferential treatment or money 
but in return doesn't actually have to take the stand. He's dry. He doesn't have to get wet. Did they actually try to kill him? Yes, that happened. How did that happen in real life? Just like you see in the movie. They bugged his car. Didn't work. He, he's walking out of uh, a lunch meeting. He's in front of like, he's like in the, a parking lot that was shared by Marie Callender and Tony Romas, place for ribs, um, right in downtown Vegas. And uh, no one knows for sure who planted the bomb. But I'll say definitively, if, and I'm 99% certain that Spilatro was behind that bomb and wanted to kill Lefty. But that bombing and trying to kill Lefty against the wishes of the Chicago mob had nothing to do with why Spilatro was eventually killed. They try to make it seem like right. in the movie that that was connected. connected. I mean, if you're Jewish or Irish or you're not Italian, you're, you're just not going to be able to uh, like the, the Jimmy the Gent thing, like uh, what I was trying to explain was was a, a unicorn of a situation. I mean, normally, no matter how high you could rise as a non-Italian, you're always going to be on the losing end of certain things because you're not Italian. You're not going to inspire right. the assassination of somebody else within right. the Italian. They just looked at it as like, okay, we didn't want him to do it, but he did it. We're not going to kill him for it. If it was an Italian guy he tried to do that to, another made guy he tried to do that to, they would have killed him. Why did Spolotro, Nicky Santoro, want him dead? Like, yeah, in real life. He felt betrayed by him. What, how you saw that relationship fray in the movie is what happened. Um, there became a bitter rivalry between the two. They both blamed each other for, for, for the other one's problems, or they blamed the other one for their own problems. Uh, Tony Spilatro was sleeping with, in the movie, Jerry, or sorry, in the movie, Ginger, in real life, her name was Jerry. Uh, in the movie, it's Ginger McKenna. In real life, it was Jerry McGee. Uh, that was a, that was simply to show Lefty that he could do it. <laughs> like, I mean, Tony Spilatro at that point could sleep with any woman in Vegas. Sharon Stone, I mean. No, no, I know. I'm just in saying 1995. That, I'm saying that there's, there's more, more reasons than just to show you can. I, I, just I'm saying. saying in the seventies when that was happening, a lot of it was him trying to put Lefty in his place. So you think that was more purposeful and more Machiavellian than it was lust? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Put him in his place for what? He felt like just like you seen in the movie that he that Rosenthal felt like or Santoro felt that Rothstein or Spilatro felt that Rosenthal was getting too big for his britches and and had the Spilatro believed that Rosenthal thought that he had more juice than Spilatro and that he was more of an asset to the bosses back in Chicago than Spilatro was that he was doing business the right way when Spilatro was doing business the wrong way, that Spilatro's behavior was actually threatening the mob's investment there when Spilatro felt like it was Rosenthal going on television and, and making a, you know, 
making a whole scene and being all dramatic, whether it be at the licensing hearing, which again, that really happened just like you see in the movie uh, or having his own local access television show, which local cable access, which really happened. Um, If you ask Spilatro, that was where the heat was coming from. If you asked Rosenthal, the heat was coming from Tony Spilatro, you know, killing more people in his first five years in Vegas than the previous 50 years in Vegas. Was it actually problematic from the mob boss perspective that Spilotro was sleeping with Jerry? Yeah. Because if there's one yeah. thing they don't like yeah. these guys, that's yeah, true. That is true. That but not to the point where they were going to whack him. Okay. Let's talk about Jerry a little bit. Ben, let's throw up the side-by-side. Geraldine McGee. Am McGee, I, McGee. 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 <laughs> it's another one of those where I, I pulled it up and I heard I heard someone say McGee. I'm like, there's no way. That looks like McGee to me. So Gerald, Geraldine McGee, Jerry, who, I don't know, she, she kind of looks a little... Uh, like similar there, honestly. I've seen different pictures where she didn't look, and she really had a James Woods uh, Lester Diamond. I don't. Well, I, I'm actually going to ask you about. His, Lester I don't. Diamond. I can't remember what his but real name no was. There's no Lester Diamond. There's no Lester Diamond, but there but was there's a, a Lester Diamond character. There was a person that I I can't remember his real name, but was what Lester Diamond was in the movie. Tell me about Sharon Stone as Jerry. Are we? Yeah, it was a, it was a very accurate true? portrayal. I mean, she had this had the city wired. Um, she was a, a mover and a shaker and someone that didn't love Lefty Rosenthal, but loved everything that Lefty Rosenthal brought to the table in terms of uh, a partner and, you know, access, celebrity, money, power. Why did Lefty marry her? Lefty was legitimately in love with her. He, he was, uh, you know, that was, um, that was an obsession. I mean, that was a, he was consumed with her. So that dynamic is, yeah, that sounds like you're yeah. describing the movie. Yeah. Basically. Yes. And he, he, but he also saw her as a status symbol. So she, but she had juice before she even met him. Right. Yeah. I mean, she was juicing around there. Uh, uh, was someone that, um, knew how to leverage access. Um, keep everyone happy, you know, grease as many wheels as you can. Jerry is portrayed, you know, as ginger, obviously in the film, I would argue, and maybe some would disagree, but I would argue ginger is portrayed as for lack of a better term, the femme fatale. She's the not entire reason, but the biggest reason and the first domino in the collapse of this whole thing. Is that fair in how it actually happened? Did yeah, she, she play this she, role where she was the powder kick? Yeah, well, she she became she came between Tony and Lefty, which took the temperature on that situation up to a thousand. Um, I, I don't know what would happen without her in the equation, but there's no question that she stoked the flames and you know took it to the point where they both wanted to kill each other, and. Yeah, the only reason, you know, if <laughs> he tried, I mean, he tried to kill him. I mean, if, if it wasn't for that manufacturing oddity, he would have been dead. 
But at that point, he couldn't go back at him. The you know the bosses wouldn't allow him to go back at him. Um, and he kind of had to let sleeping dogs lie. And and at that point, she left town. Uh, and and just like you, they tell you in the movie, she took the money that he she had gotten from from uh, Lefty and went to L.A. and spent it in a couple months and got hooked up with some bikers and uh, the bikers were reaching out to Rothstein or to Rosenthal to um, try to extort him. He was sending guys to LA to try to fight the bikers. Cause he still thought he could somehow get her back. And she, she took it to the end with her. Yeah. And she, you know, OD'd in a sleazy Los Angeles hotel, like shortly after the, the, um, the car bomb. So she's in L.A. shortly before Odine, and he is still clinging to, I'm going to get her back. Well, he was also offended that these bikers would come at him. He basically, to, to what Tony Spilatra was saying was true. He, with those casinos and, and with him being, in his mind, the king of Vegas, meaning lefty, he thought he was untouchable. He thought he was, um, he thought he was John Gotti. She that, said, that's a that's a part. I think they they show that a little bit. Um, that part I don't know. So so that part of the portrayal was kind of I think left out a little bit. That he was throwing his weight around like a mob guy. You see it a little bit in the movie. She says to him, "Oh, so what? Who blew you in the parking lot? Did he actually have side pieces? Yeah, he had side, he had side pieces too. Okay, because they don't." That's the only inference that I'm aware of and that that I can recall yeah. in that entire film where there's a little bit of that. Because when she says, but that, but who blew you in the parking lot? But that's, that's the, but that's the ultimate double standard in, in that world. You know, a, a mob guy or a mob associate's allowed to have as many girlfriends as he wants and a wife. But n- n- the wife nor the girlfriends have any... <laughs> freedom to go sleep with other so guys. So she was out of line and he wasn't by yeah. the rules of mm-hmm. the mafia. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just, it is interesting because Scorsese clearly did not want to feature that. And I think it would have made him less sympathetic as this guy. This they kind of, you know, they kind of infer it in one scene. I just said the one, right? There's another one. When the, the who blew you in the parking lot is a clear like No, but there was another scene where they have met at the, it's in the, it's in the eighties and they start playing talking heads music and they're at, the club and it's him uh frank marino and he's i mean some other people and he's got the the woman who was the co-host on his television show sitting next to him in the booth yeah and in real life that was one of his oh all right girlfriends they they definitely but but you have to kind of know yeah the you know i've the, seen the movie the a thousand sheet. times that i didn't even yeah. like and that's when he says i look at oscar and he was referring to oscar goodman the future mayor of Las Vegas at that time, Oscar was the big mob attorney and they're saying, Hey, look at Oscar. All those guys are having a good time. All those Jews, you know, sticking together, uh, you know, not giving us a time of day. Did lefty die of natural causes? Yeah. Lefty died of natural causes living in Florida. Was he ever in any risk of, no, he was, we found out later he was protected. That's why he never got locked up, which really, when you think about it, I don't know why it took people so long to figure that out. Because he was right in the middle of all of that, and everybody went to prison, but he never even had to go to court. And the mafia had no idea you said until he died. 
That's that's a bad yeah. job by them. Yeah. That's a bad job by them. I and I mean, like. you had, uh, you know, 10 mafia dons go to prison because of what happened in that movie. Isn't and not from one city, like from like five or six different cities. I, you've touched on it. Go a little bit deeper. Nikki Santoro. For most people, I think the most resonant character, the most quoted character in this film, for sure. You made me pop your eye out. Protect that motherfucker. <laughs> Charlie M. Charlie M. Charlie M. And that, that piece of shit. And that really, ha- and that really happened. <laughs> oh, God. So the Charlie M. eye popping that, incident that, occurred. Yeah, it was. The, uh, but it didn't. Um, again, they conflated some facts. It didn't happen in Las Vegas. I don't care about what hallway. It took well, I'm just telling you, it didn't happen during Tony Spilatro's Las Vegas reign. It okay. happened before he got to Las Vegas. What happened when he there? was in Chicago? What What happened? Just like you see in the movie, uh, a guy, uh, two guys, Charlie Maraglia and Jimmy. Uh, the guy's name was actually Charlie M. Let me see. Hold <laughs> on, I have it written down. Um. Two guys go into a mobbed up bar in Chicago in the 1960s and shoot it up. Um, they end up killing a waitress. The bar owner was connected to some mob bosses. He was very close to the waitress, very upset that the waitress had been killed, um, was upset that his bar got, uh, ha- had got shot up. Um, the name would be Billy McCarthy and Jimmy Maraglia. It was known in the Chicago press as the Eminem murders. And it happened in 1962. Um, they shoot the place up. At that point, Spilatro had just been uh, inducted, made member, and was being utilized by the murder squad uh, in the Chicago mafia. His, one of his mentors was a guy named Milwaukee Phil Aldericio, F- Felix Aldericio, Milwaukee Phil. And, uh, Milwaukee Phil would handle a lot of the murders in the 1960s. And he put Spilatro on the job as well as Frank Collada uh, in the movie, Frank Marino. And they track these guys down. Well, they track one of them down. um, And they put his head in a vice to give them the name of the other guy and where he was. So I think they killed. I got it in my notes. Here. Was it a mercy killing like it's portrayed? Like they popped yeah. this out. Do him so a, Macar- do a so favor. Macar- so they killed McCarthy wanting him to give up Jimmy Miraglia. And he did. And then Miraglia is killed the very next day. And they're, stopped, they're, they're stacked on top of each other and put in the back of Miraglia's Cadillac. Tell me about Pesci's portrayal at large in general. You said he didn't swear much, the real... Uh, That's what I heard. I, I got to interview Frank Collada, um, who was the Frank Marino character, and he said that was really the only big difference, is that he, he didn't have the, the F-bombs weren't dropping every 30 seconds like you see in the, in the film. But other than that, um, that was kind of who Tony Spilatro was. So his uh, sort of attitude and flying off the handle and recklessness he's Vegas portrayed went, as this guy that's like flying in the face yeah, of the mob boss vegas went to his head i mean just like you see in the movie yeah him being a thousand miles away from chicago was the worst thing that could ever happen to him he felt like you know he he was invincible he was unchecked he felt like he had enough support in chicago that it didn't matter what he did there that the guys in Chicago would watch his back. And again, it was true to an extent. Joey Doves, the Remo character, 
really liked Tony Spilatro. And just like we were talking about with other people, um, over the years, a number of people went to the Chicago mob bosses and were like, we want to kill Tony Spilatro and Joey Doves and another guy named Joey the Clown Lombardo. And back in the 60s, Milwaukee Phil, they protected him. Um, but when he was sent out to Vegas to run the Chicago mob operations in the desert, like I said a couple minutes ago, there were 25 murders in the first two, three years. There hadn't been 25 murders in Las Vegas for 30 years. He, he, he accumulated a body total in three years that hadn't been accumulated in the previous 30. He was just whacking everybody. Whacking everybody. Um, so, Without approval. And he uh, needed approval, well, at the, right? at that, No, at that point, he had approval. At that point, they're like, go to Chicago and get everything in order. Okay. Now, what he didn't have approval of was when he started to run street rackets there. He was just sent there to look after the skim and the what, operations within the legal gambling industry there. He saw Vegas as untapped territory i mean nobody was there shaking down bookmakers nobody was down there extorting businesses or uh, loaning out money doing high-end burglaries and it was it, it was uh the the potential he saw um overwhelmed him and he immediately jumped in head first and got everybody in line and was running street rackets quiet i mean not quietly because he was killing people, but the guys in Chicago didn't really understand the amount of extracurricular activities that Spilatro was involved in outside of just looking after the, the casinos and, and the stealing that was going on there. How did the real life Nicky Santoro meet his end? How did he die? In real life, he was killed in a very similar way that you see in the movie, except it didn't take place in a cornfield uh, took place in the basement of a Chicago residence where he was. And I think this is also very uh, emblematic and encapsulates how much hatred and bitterness had accrued against him. And by the time he was killed in 86, and like I said, that was four years after the car bombing. Um, so it really had nothing to do with the car bombing. But what you did see in some dialogue in that movie is when uh, Sam Ace Rothman says, I don't want to do anything you're talking about. Like, keep me out of that. What he was saying, and I think the character, Splato character said before him, like, if I do what I want to do, you're not going to have to ask for permission anymore. You're not going to need a license. Right, right need a license. Yeah. So what he was saying is, I, I'm, I'm intending to take over the entire Chicago mafia. I'm going to kill my way to the top. Um, and then I'm going to be controlling everything from Vegas. Uh, and word got back to the guys in Chicago that he was talking about killing those guys. Now, a lot of those guys were headed to prison because of what happened in Vegas. He saw them heading to prison as a vacuum for him to fill. It's an opening. Right. So specifically, Joey Doves, Iupa, goes to prison in January of 1986. And he's replaced by a guy named Joe Ferriola. And Joe Ferriola disdains Tony Spilatro. And you know, 
again, it's something that most people probably don't know is when you get a promotion like that in the mafia, you become boss. Normally they hold an inauguration, you know, like, you know, a ceremony to bring you in as the boss. And Variola had a ceremony in, I think it was February of 86. And it was at a place called the Czech Lodge and had a private room and had all of the the major players in the Chicago Mafia. And Joe Fiorella stood up to address his new men. And the first thing he said is, my first order of business as a new boss is to go out to Vegas and kill that little motherfucker. That's the first thing he said Yeah, with the chief's hat on. Yeah. And he's like, this is our first order of business right now. He's caused all of us all these problems. And he's running his mouth about killing us. So not only did they kill him the way you saw in the movie, where they beat him to death with baseball bats, strangled him, beat, stomped him to death in front of, or made him watch his little brother get murdered before they murdered him. That all happened. Um, but he did it. They did it with an audience. All of the Chicago, mo- now it's for murders in the mafia, the actual bosses, they want to be as far away from the actual murder itself as possible. Like if they know the murder is happening on a Monday, they're on a plane to Florida the Friday before that. So they have plausible deniability. Get that alibi. Yeah. But in Chicago, there was so much hatred for Spilatro. The mob shot callers wanted to be there to witness it. So he was called to, just like you see in the movie, Goodfellas. He was called to a making ceremony. He was living in Vegas. They told him that your brother's going to be inducted and you're going to be promoted to a capo spot. He was already a capo for all intents and purposes. Um, so he flies home to Chicago on a Friday. He's supposed to come back on a Monday. The ceremony is supposed to be on a Saturday, I think. Or maybe it was supposed to be a Sunday. It was either Saturday or Sunday. And him and his brother knew it was a 50-50, like, they gave all their jewelry and all their cash and all their wallets to their loved ones and said, if we're not back by dinner, they went at like one o'clock, two o'clock. They said, if we're not back by dinner time, something bad happened. Um, so they get picked up uh, by a guy named Jimmy Marcello, who eventually becomes the boss of the Chicago Mafia years later. And Marcello picks him up at a hotel. Uh, they leave their car, go have a drink at the hotel bar, get in the car to go to the ceremony. And when they first walk in, they're greeted um, with hugs upstairs and they see all these mob bosses. So they think, well, they wouldn't kill us with the sitting mob administration right here. Uh, and then they're like, okay, let's go downstairs and have a ceremony. And then when they started to walk downstairs, they realized that it actually was a slaughter. And there were a bunch of hitmen waiting for them downstairs. And the bosses came and took a, took a seat. To watch it. Were they actually, or at least in his case, was he buried alive? Yeah. Um, there's still some speculation about that. I sense that he probably wasn't now that we have 40 years removed from it or not. But I know that initial reports was that he had uh, like sand in his lungs from breathing the uh, where he'd been buried. And so where he was buried was in a cornfield. Okay. That's where they get the, uh, and the burial got fucked up. How? So they, they give the, uh, you know, like I said, it's very um, systematic, uh, s- systemic. 
or systematic 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 yeah uh where you know one crew's in charge of one thing one crew's in charge of another thing so they have a whole cleanup crew that had nothing to do with the actual murder but is there to come and clean the basement (laughs) and remove the bodies to uh well in this case they wanted to take them over to the state line of indiana and bury them in indiana northwest indiana so uh, a guy by the name of albert taco they called him caesar the fox another guy named big john uh, Thakarada were put in charge of the burial and they got lost when they were going to bury the bodies in Indiana. It was the middle of the night. Tacos got his like two or three of his subordinates digging a hole. He's in a car. He somehow loses them in the cornfield. Can't find them. They see like lights. They think the lights are cops. It's just like a, like a farmer driving somewhere. They all bolt. The bodies are not even fully in the ground. Albert Taco can't find his crew members. So it's kind of like every man for himself at that point. They get into the car and leave Taco because they don't know where Taco is. He walks to a payphone. He's in like work clothes with blood all over him and calls his wife to pick him up. So his wife, Betty, comes and picks him up. Eventually, they get divorced, and Benny or Betty, you know, runs the FBI. So that's how this whole thing happened. One of the, the, yeah. the truth came out. Well, yeah, and then John Fecarata, even though he wasn't the one that got lost in the cornfield, Taco was. You would think that Taco would have to bear the brunt of that, but he he survived it. They killed Fecarata instead. So Scott, I invited you to do the show tonight, but if someone had told you, "Hey, you show up in Spiro's basement." coin flip that you come out of there alive yeah i'm bolting i'm guessing you don't show up no i don't but why did he show up because this this is just the life that these guys choose i mean you did he have a choice not to show up in theory but in practice he knows uh, how far can i run they're gonna find me that's fascinating so you you it's or i could go or i could go you know run to the arms of the fbi but that's something that was probably against every you know fiber in his body so he's giving his stuff away, him and his brother. What did his brother do? Why did his brother? His brother was just someone that, like, it was his youngest brother. He idolized Tony, um, wanted to be like Tony, was a tough guy. Was also a, because of their connections in Hollywood, uh, Michael, they called him Mickey. He, he appeared in some, like, Magnum P.I. episodes. They were buddies with, um, uh, I think his name was Larry Minetti. He played one of the main characters on Magnum P.I., um, and I think he was in another, maybe like a Fantasy Island episode or something. But Michael was a a wannabe Tony, and they worried that if they killed Tony and left Michael, that Michael would, you know, it was a bit of a cowboy like his brother, and that his brother would, you know, try to exact vengeance. So they killed both of them. It was more the, of a the, preemptive strike. Yeah. The other brothers uh, were still around and existed in the outfit orbit for years after that. Um, and they didn't feel like John and Victor, who were the two other big mobster brothers of, of Tony, they didn't feel like they would have problems with them, and they left them. They, they allowed, allowed those guys to live. Is that the only murder that you're aware of where mob bosses not only were present but made a point to yeah. be present? Yes. And that is entirely— yeah, it's, it's very, very rare if— Maybe it's never even happened. Before. It might be a one-on-one, yeah. and that's bred from their contempt for him. Yeah, 
That's fascinating. And that's better than what they showed. Why didn't yeah. Scorsese use that? That's better than what happened. Yeah. Well, because they didn't know. Yeah, all, all this stuff, you know, and where my expertise comes in is when all of these events are finally adjudicated. And it's 20 years later. And it's 2005. And the murders are finally charged. And a bunch of of the specifics that they didn't know in the 80s or 90s when Scorsese was making the movie started to, to um, be revealed. And I covered, that was my first, kind of made my bones as a mob reporter uh, covering that trial. And that's where I wrote my book uh, from that trial. And uh, a lot of that stuff nobody knew until it came out in the 2007 trial that, found uh you know that that resulted in convictions for the two Spilatro brothers uh killers the moron cowboy brother-in-law that didn't see the three jackpots in a row and that there's a problem and you know that was a the, co- the, co- the cowboy guy yeah well, that part was true too that they they were running in to problems with these kind of like old school hillbilly i don't want to say mob guys but uh powerful entities within the city that expected kickbacks and jobs and um, preferential treatment. And Tony Spilatro was like, I don't give a fuck if, if you're some wannabe hillbilly gangster from Nevada. Like, I'm Tony Spilatro from Chicago. But it was lefties, the one that didn't play ball in the film, though. It's, it's Ace. It's not. No, I know. Both of them. Okay, but so I'm saying they cool. were both buddy. I'm saying from the time they got to Vegas, both those guys were butting heads with a lot of the old guard. Old, old guard. It wired in. Yeah. And, but it. They the, show you in the movie, it looks like one of them's working with Tony. But in the movie, it's portrayed as part of the reason the law came down yeah. on Lefty, his lack of willingness to continue yeah, that's true. indulging this. Yes. That's true. Yeah. What element of that? actually happened like what was there actually a guy that didn't see three jackpots in a row and all that? Well, i don't know about that part but the part where uh pat webb who was a real person uh shows up it, it, in his office and kind of says like you know what's going on here like you know i want you to treat us with the respect that we deserve as being people that have been here before you ever knew what Las Vegas was or before you ever had an idea of coming out here and trying to you ain't spread home. the Chicago mob brand. Yeah. Um, and that, th- you know, there was a real battle between the web and, and uh, Rosenthal. Uh, there's so many, like you could do an hour. I feel like on this little 32nd scene, this 32nd, I'm fascinated by it. I could have you back and just go through this entire, both movies again. There's so many components of it. And it's this is one, just how 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 crazy it is sometimes, and how fate plays a role. The, none of what happened with those convictions. It was a historic case called Operation Family Secrets, the biggest mafia prosecution in American history after Rudy Giuliani's uh, commission case in New York. Um, the uh, uh, U.S. Attorney in Chicago kind of one-upped him in a little bit. It was a huge case, brought it in 05, three or four-month trial in 07, uh, adjudicated 18 cold case murders dating back all the way to 1970. And none of that 
would have been possible if it wasn't for a total fluke or a couple things. So the burial is botched and they want to kill the guy that botched the burial, this John Fakarada, who was, I guess he was in charge of the people that botched the burial. And they assigned these two brothers, the Calabrese brothers, to kill him. And they lure him. They say, we're going to go rob a place. And they pick him up. We're going, for, we're going to a robbery, when in reality, they're going to kill him. And they're driving, and they, I think they stop somewhere, and they turn around. One, one of the brothers is in the passenger seat. One of the brothers is in the driver's seat. And Fakarada is in the back. And the brother in the passenger seat turns around and shoots Fakarada. Fekarada had a gun and was a big guy. And he, he, even though he takes a shot, he grabs the hand of Nikki Calabrese and they're fighting and they're, they fall out of the car. And uh, Fekarada's got a gun on him and he shoots the shooter, Nikki Calabrese, in the shoulder and then takes off. Nikki Calabrese gets up and runs after him, catches him in a bingo hall in the vestibule of a bingo hall and puts two in the back of Fakarada's head. As he's running back to his brother in the getaway car, Nikki, uh, Nikki Calabrese drops his glove. So in 1986, the feds have a bloody glove, but they have no one to match it to. Fast forward into the 2000s, the Calabreses are in prison for something else related to racketeering. And Nikki and Frank Calabrese are in different prisons. And Frank Calabrese has a son, uh, Frank Jr., who despises his dad. And when he's in prison, he reaches out to the FBI and says, I want to build a case against my dad and my uncle for you. And oh, by the way, you know that bloody glove that you've been looking to, to, to uh, connect to somebody for the last 18 years? It's my uncle. And my uncle and my dad are the guys that killed Vaccarata. So they go to Nikki Calabrese in prison and they say, all right, so we're going to get a, a DNA swab from you. And we're going to get a X-ray and we're going to X-ray your shoulder. And that X-ray is going to light up like a Christmas tree because we know you got a bullet in your shoulder. And the DNA is going to match because we know that's your blood on the glove. And they leveraged that for Nikki Calabrese to become the first ever member of the Chicago Mafia to turn government witness because of that. And he was one of the killers of the Spilato brothers. And he told them the whole story of how the Spilato brothers were lured and That's how and we murdered. know. Yeah. He's, uh, he's already in prison, so why turn? Because they were going to kill Nikki. Oh, okay. His own brother was going to kill him. And they were going to kill him in prison. Why get involved in this world, Scott? I yeah. mean, my God. <laughs> like, because we're, and then. They're all banging each other's and, wives. And, 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 and uh, what's also um, nuts, and luckily for, for Nikki, he just died this year, actually, in witness protection. Um, but they almost found him in witness protection. They had a dirty U.S. marshal. And they have, like, located him after he had flipped. And luckily they. It was prevented, but the how was it Chicago, prevented? I don't know exactly, but they they found no prevented it. on the mafia side or prevented on like the, 
the, the U.S. Marshal was going to tip off the Chicago mob to where they were hiding Nikki Calabrese so they could kill him before he could ever take the stand in the Spilato trial. Is that the worst thing you can do in the mafia is, is flip against them? Turn yeah. rat? Yeah. Is that the biggest offense? Yeah. Other than maybe killing a yeah. Don or something? Yeah. But that brought, I mean, that, so all those murders and all the stuff that had happened in the 70s and 80s was sitting there unresolved um, until, you know, the 2007 trial when all those guys were uh, convicted. So, you know, it took 21 years uh, to finally, you know, get justice. Are you, do you consider Goodfellas and Casino equally effective at portraying the reality of what happened? Yes. They are equals in that regard. I wish, in, I mean, this is a nitpick. I wish in Casino they wouldn't have said back home. They never said Chicago. I wish they would have, like, specified that this was the Chicago Mafia. This was the Chicago outfit, as they're called. They're the ones that are the, uh, the, the tip of the spear when it came to Las Vegas. You know, New York really had nothing to do with Vegas. It was a Midwest thing. It was Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Kansas City, St. Louis. Have you had a... You mentioned a Goodfellas conversation. Have you had a casino conversation with a member of the mafia that was involved in yeah, this? Yeah, in Chicago, yeah, yeah. What, what's their perception of the film? Um, Do they like it? Yeah. Uh, they all... <laughs> Tony Spilatro is someone who has a lot of mythology, you know, today, even today in the, in the 2020s, even though he ended the way he ended there are still people on the streets of Chicago that love telling Tony Spilatro war stories. But they hated him. But the, the powers that be hated him. The powers hated him. The, the street powers guys that him. be hated him. The street guys, street guys liked him. He was pretty ruthless, though. Yeah, and he was ambitious. And a lot of people are like, you know, things go a different direction. Maybe he does take over and kill his way to the top of the outfit. And um, so I, he, he's someone that is still on the streets thought of in very high regard, um, even though the, the bosses back then, you know, <laughs> wanted to see him slaughtered. They, they, wanted, to, they, wanted, they wanted their pound of flesh. But uh, he, he is one of, you know, him and Sam Giancana, Al Capone, that's all kind of in the same, it, it's just, uh, he's, he's, he's a, a urban, an urban legend, you know, a cult hero. In some ways, the most resonant character probably from that film. Although I, you nobody like nobody like Lefty. That was nobody like, the, like Lefty. Nobody like Lefty. I thought they all liked Lefty. No, no, they respected Lefty, and they knew that Lefty was a huge earner, and Lefty was very good at his job. Yeah, but people liked Tony Spilatro. People didn't really like Lefty Rosenthal. The bot, but the bosses liked the, Lefty. The bosses like Lefty because yeah. he made them a lot of money. Yeah, so Spolotro's the man of the people yeah. and Lefty's yeah. the... Well, it, to make it a... To, to tie it into headlines today with, you know, Billy Walters, the, the gambler who's come out, wrote that book and starting to talk about Phil Mickelson and all that stuff. Yes. In that book, he's got a good story about how he had to leave town. Uh, he had to leave Vegas for two years because of Spolotro. Uh And he had a... Uh, he talks about in that book a lunch he had with Benny Binion, um, who was a gangster in Texas before he came to to um, Las Vegas and reinvented himself as the, you know, the inventor of the world series of poker. Um, but Benny Binion was one of the biggest gangsters the, the state of Texas has ever seen. You are a fan of the films. Obviously you're a big Scorsese fan. You're a you know, cinephile and you're also, I mean, what a top five expert in this field outside of people that are actually 
in the mob. I would humbly say that I'm the number one American organized crime expert. And you have a case for that, for yes, sure. Thank you. Let's say I hate you and I'm putting you fourth. You're definitely in the yes, top five. You're you. number one in my book. Thank you. But no one could dispute that you are, if not number one, one of the most foremost experts no. in this. You just, you just the best. Thank ben is, <laughs> I agree. I'm just saying, let's say I hate you. Yeah, yeah. Even your biggest hater could right. not argue that you are one of the foremost experts in this field. And Scott definitely does have haters. <laughs> we talked a little bit about very some of them. Very but. dangerous men that don't like me. Yeah, you have a lot of like, you know, uh, guys with uh, names like they sound like a character from one yeah. of these Corsese films that are not fans of yours. And we talked last time about the call you got like from prison or right. something. Yeah, I got so, a text from prison. Yeah, a text from prison, which is, I mean, I've had a couple of phone conversations right. from prison that were controversial, but not uh, of a threatening nature. So. Here's where I want to go with this, and this is kind of where I want to wrap and, and, you know, wrap it how you see fit. But comparatively, and I'm a huge fan of both, so I don't want to pit them against each other. But as someone that is, as we mentioned, an expert in this field who enjoys them, what is the superior entry into this genre, knowing what you know and, you know, your background and your expertise? What is the better film as an expert in this field? Goodfellas or Casino? I mean, in terms of like the nuts and bolts of organized crime and the day-to-day machinations, yes, it's Goodfellas is, is a better film in that regard. But I'm definitely open to the less popular opinion that Casino is a more entertaining movie or a, a you know a, maybe a better movie in terms of actual you know cinema or or movie making yeah i know it's not it's not the consensus it's it's the it's outlier, minority opinion. the outlier opinion yeah but i think you can make it and and i find watching casino just as enjoyable for the thousandth time that i do goodfellas but i i still say goodfellas is just in my, it's just a perfect film. I, I don't see any flaws with it. There's, there's nothing that I would trim from it. There's nothing that I would add to it. And for describing or depicting the everyday life of the mafia, it's just, uh, it's perfect. It's, it, it hits every note. Um, but Casino is, is great in its own right. Um, it's a different story. It's it's told different. I mean, yes, you have the voiceovers and you have the uh, the um, usual Scorsese brilliance, but uh, it, you're, you're talking about different parts of the country, different organizations. The way they do things in Chicago is different than they do things in New York. You know, this was and this wasn't even taking place in Chicago. It was Chicago guys operating in Las Vegas, and you know, in the seventies. So as opposed to Goodfellas, which was taking you from the 50s all the way up into the 80s. Is the Goodfellas entry the best entry in this genre? Is Goodfellas the best? Well, God, I think Godf- Godfather or Godfather 2 is the greatest movie of all time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the balance of entertainment and true reflections. Yeah. Is yes. Goodfellas good, good. the I'd best? Say, I'd say Goodfellas is yes. Okay. And Casino, Casino's... I mean, I, again, I, if, you, if you sat there and argued to me that Casino is a better movie and had taken, taken away the, the reality or the, yeah. the, the, what I just, 
I'm not going to argue with you. I mean, you could argue that to me, and I could I could end up agreeing with you. I love I love casino. Sharon Stone casino is a top 25 acting performance in the history of Hollywood. I mean, I don't know where it might be 18th or eighth. There's I, no way 25 better performances have taken place. I guess I guess the I wouldn't even say this is a critique. No, I, I, not about her. Come on. No, 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 I'm not she's talking about her. I'm, I'm talking about the movie. I'm talking about, no, I'm talking about the movie. I'm saying with Goodfellas, there's probably nothing that I would trim. Casino, there might be a couple little trims I would make if I was the editor of that movie. There was a couple things that got a little bit. Uh, I'm I'm trying to remember specifically. I can't think of one scene. I'd be like, eh, I can't see that. That to, I mean, I, we could talk about it after maybe, but I I don't see that. So putting a button on it, you're a Goodfellas guy, but you're also a casino guy. I didn't write a book about Goodfellas. I wrote a book about casino. So I'm yeah, that that's well. I'm in the rare camp. I'm the <laughs> casino guy. Finish here. Did you feel a little bit betrayed by the Irishman, which I have not seen, but I have heard. Every expert in the field seems to say it's an abomination. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. That's another one we'll it's, use. It's, it's, we, did you feel betrayed from Scorsese who made these two? You called one of them, Goodfellas, a perfect entry into the genre. Did you feel a little bit like, come on, Martin? I, I, I think it was a wasted opportunity. Martin Scorsese could have done a Jimmy Hoffa movie and it could have been just as good as Goodfellas and Casino. But instead, him and Robert De Niro decided to take the story of a, a, a known liar, uh, a, a known drunk, somebody that didn't have anywhere near the amount of power and sway and um, presence that he made it out to be in his book. I'm speaking about Frank Sheeran and his book, I Heard You Paint Houses. I know a lot of specifics about the book deal, how that book deal got made. Uh, I have no problem sharing them. Uh, Frank Sheeran shopped that book twice without saying anything about Jimmy Hoffa, and nobody bought it because nobody cares about Frank Sheeran because there's no reason to care about Frank Sheeran. Um, he was a, a, a Teamsters boss from Delaware. I mean, that's all you need to know. Yeah. Uh, and then the third time he sat with an agent that used to be my agent. And it was told to him that if you want to sell this book, you should put in there that you killed Jimmy Hoffa. And that's what he did. And they sold the book. And then Scorsese and De Niro came and scooped it up. And more power to him. You know, I look at God bless Charlie Brandt. And and Frank Sheeran, and that in one sense, you know, because everybody wants to get their book turned into a Scorsese movie. So I don't hold that against them. Great, but you know, Frank Sheeran, you know, it, it, it's the con from it's the great con. It's, it, it's the long con. It's the great con. It, it, it's a con from the grave. I mean, he's he's laughing from the from the graveyard that his legacy is, and it's and it's never going to get. This is for the for the for for Joe and Jane America. This is the gospel. Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa. Martin Scorsese told us. And he was so dead nuts accurate in his previous right. films about this, you know, in the genre. Yeah. And, and this is just, uh, it's farcical. And if you talk to any FBI agent that worked the Jimmy Hoffa case, you talk to any criminal that was involved in the Jimmy Hoffa investigation, they all laugh when you 
put the name Frank Sheeran up to them as someone that might have had something to do with this. I mean, there are, there's a, a growing belief amongst retired FBI agents right now, and I know one or two of them that are actually doing research to this, that they want to somehow present, and I don't know how they'll go about doing this, that not only did Frank Sheeran not kill Jimmy Hoffa, but their premise of this investigation is that Frank Sheeran never killed anybody. And they promote him in the movie as some, you know, trained mafia killer who got his, you know, learned the tricks of the trade in the military and brought him over to, you know, when he was in World War II and then, you know, started using those, that skill set for the mafia. And he was some secret weapon for the mafia. And it's like, not, none, of, none of that. It's, it's, it's laughable. Koppelman, uh, is it Brian Koppelman, the creator of yeah. Rounders? was on the Bill Simmons rewatchable show talking about the Godfather. And they had a brief mention of the Irishman in that. And Koppelman was criticizing Bill Simmons for not having liked the Irishman and Koppelman who, you know, wrote rounders is a successful guy in his own right said that the Irishman is going to age to the level or near of the Godfather Mm -hmm. that it's liked. Now it's going to age incredibly. Do you think Koppelman's no. insane? Yeah, that's crazy. That's just what casino, he said. I haven't seen it. How about so. we just talk about, in that context, Casino. Casino wasn't incredibly well-received. Casino has aged miraculously. That's what he's predicting at but I'm Bar. What I'm saying is, though, if, if you go back, and I'm a little older than you guys, I went and saw Casino at the theater. I remember the reaction to Casino. It wasn't anywhere near the reaction to Goodfellas. Casino is, some, is something that gained a lot of love as the years went on, in a similar way to Scarface. I mean, look at the, look at the Oscar nominations for Goodfellas compared to Casino. There was only one, there was only one nomination, Scor- Stone. I mean, Scorsese had such an undying loyalty to the truth where any changes in the two movies, and we've talked about them, were more cosmetic yeah. or subtle or he changed the location of this was not actually a cornfield it was a basement but everything else is the same it, he was very loyal to the truth here do you think that martin scorsese believes the story he told in the irishman i don't think martin scorsese cares i think he cared Ra- in the other two I, I, i'm just telling you from what i've heard from people that have hit the siren benny from people that have that have been involved in conversations with the people that made that movie, including Scorsese and De Niro, um, that Scorsese is just like, I want to tell a great story. I don't care if it's true. Robert De Niro is the person that is adamant that Frank Sheeran is telling the truth and everything that they said in that movie is true. And that Frank Sheeran murdered Jimmy Hoffa. That's all De Niro. He believes that. De Niro like, believes. like actually believes. Yes. That. And I know people that I respect that are considered the foremost experts in this subject that had meetings with Scorsese and De Niro before the production of the movie telling them you're wrong to approach this material like this and you're going to be spreading lies and because it's coming from you everybody's going to believe it and they didn't care we don't know what happened with Hoffa though 
So they and we seem to know a lot more about the loose ends with Goodfellas and Casino and the. I know two. what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> well, you don't actually. Know. I do know. Let's I go do. find him then. Where's he at? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying I, I can't. That's tell our you. most viral clip that we've ever tell, done. Was I you can't tell. About I can't tell you 100 percent what happened to him, but me and the FBI can tell you 99.9 percent what happened to him and who did it. Why don't they tell us that story then? I bet they will on the 50 year anniversary. I think they're going to close the investigation and issue a report. Really? Yeah. What, when's the, what, what are we it at? It was what seventy eight that that happened. Seventy five. So it'll okay. be uh, another uh, good uh, random two guess. years. But uh, so you think we're two years away from no I, body? I th- obviously, but I think they'll shut the investigation down. That's just I, I, don't, well, I, I don't shut it down or case closed. We've solved it. That's two different. Well, they can't solve it. They have they don't have a body and they well, don't have just, anyone to arrest. Was, that's what I was clarifying. I'm so saying you're shut, saying close it. They're going to close the investigation and say this is what we know. This is ninety nine point nine percent. Of certainty of what happened. This is who did it. And that's as far as we can go with this thing. But what I'm saying is that there isn't a mystery. If Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro would have done their due diligence, they would have learned very quickly that what they're, what they're saying in, in that story is, is a huge falsehood. Is our knowledge of... And it's not like something that's like open for debate where you have this one group of... This one school of thought that believes sharing and this one school of thought that doesn't believe sharing. Every single expert, every single investigator, every single FBI agent that worked this case dismiss it. it it's, it's unequivocal. And there, the funny thing is there are a thousand theories as to what happened and who was involved. There have been so many people yeah. implicated. And it, it looks like they just glommed on to a random fringe theory. Yeah, and, and furthermore, it's, it's very disrespectful to Detroit. The entire movie makes fun of Detroit. They make Tony Giacalone look like he was a water boy. The Giacalones were beside themselves with that portrayal of Tony Giacalone. So the Giacalones did not like the portrayal. They made him look like a, a, a some type of a bench warmer when, in fact, he's LeBron James. Didn't he actually kill him? No, uh, Billy. Not, ja- not literally, but Billy, order the killing. The Giacalone. He quarterbacked it. Uh, Billy Giacalone, his brother, and most likely Tony Palazzolo, who was the downriver Detroit mob capo, uh, were the killers. Do we know as much or more about the events that the Irishman is based on than we did and do about Casino and Goodfellas? Yeah. We so know, there's oh, no excuse want, to botch it like they no. did. And it's not a coincidence that they didn't shoot in Detroit. They knew if they came into town, that they would get embarrassed. Oh, do you think that was the reason? Come yes, on. I do. I really? Do. Yes. Why? By who? By the media here. I, there was no pushback locally that I'm aware of. Because, nothing, because you did a movie about an event that took place in Detroit, and you don't deal with Detroit. The, the, the word Detroit is mentioned like two times in a three-hour movie. Is it a good movie if I have no idea what actually happened? No. So it's not even good from that angle I, if i had I'm watched bi- it, I'm, I'm biased oh yeah you're as jaded against it as right. possible but i don't blame you i'd feel the same way if someone I, made a movie that I, kenneth walker wasn't the best player in america in 2021 if i if i, I get further away man. from it i might change my opinion and for example american gangster when i watched american gangster in the theater in the theater knowing the true story of frank lucas and richie roberts he said it was not as big of a deal my as, stomach know. turned and i was like i can't it was blasphemy but the further I get away from it and I can take and I can remove the, 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 the fictitious narrative and just look at it as a 
piece of art. I love American Gangster now. I really do. I can whenever it's on, I can't turn it's it off. It's so good. Russell Crowe's fantastic just, too. But, Denzel. But as long as I can remove going into it, I thought I was going to see the real story of Frank Lucas, and that's not what it is, and that's fine. But at the time, I was very offended, and I didn't like it. But now I I can watch it nonstop. Maybe I'll feel the same way about The Irishman in 10 years. I don't know. So have but, you had a first-hand conversation with a member of the Jacqueline family about The Irishman? Yeah. What was their... I mean, they were I know offend- they didn't like it. They, they thought were it was offend- a benchwarmer. Were, was like everybody the- in Detroit was a, is offended. Everybody related or involved or connected to the Detroit mafia is offended by that narrative. It makes Detroit look weak. It makes Detroit look like they were, a, uh, a, a, you know, in terms of the mafia, that they're child of the poor, that they need help handling their own business. When Detroit is the cat, Detroit is the Cadillac of American mafia. They're the Ivy League. They you do said- it, They do it better than anybody. They don't need anyone's help. The fact these guys are like, you think we needed some drunk from Delaware to come, uh, you know, c- come into our city and, and handle our business? Was the Detroit mafia as powerful as anyone at their peak? Yes. No one would guess that. Everyone would say New York or Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that is that bias New York creeping and, in? Or New, York that, and, I, New York and Chicago needed to do business with Detroit. Like they couldn't be who they were without Detroit. I mean, D- Detroit, just in terms of narcotics, you know, they were the pipeline for the entire country's uh, heroin distribution uh, business. You know, starting in the '30s all the way through the '80s. Isn't the right Hoffa movie the book on that kind of? Close the window. Close maybe is a better way to put it. Now that Scorsese has done that right. story, that's what's so. But we're that's kind of done. That's the travesty right? of it. No one's gonna follow. Right, that's that. the travesty of it. That people are just that he, Scorsese did it, so there's no reason to question it or no reason to actually go trying to get the story right. I, so I, I'm wrestling. Your people like you and the experts in the field that are so against it are the reason I haven't seen it. I'm a huge Scorsese fan. I'm fascinated by Hoffa. I think Robert De Niro is the best actor that's ever walked the face of the earth. I, so like, I have every reason to see this thing. It's based in my hometown. No, but but the, the, none of the movie takes place in Detroit. But, I, but you get what I'm saying. I have every reason in the world to have made this appointment viewing. And I'm you'll, get a, you'll, get, a, you'll get a kick of where they put the uh, Marcus Red Fox. Which we all know is on Telegraph Road. I sent you a picture of it the other day. Right. Yeah. In the movie, they make it seem like it's in like uh, the rolling hills of uh, of upstate uh, uh, Pennsylvania. It, it, I actually had a Jimmy Hoffa conversation with Dennis Rodman. He very proudly told me he lived a mile away from where they picked up Hoffa. Yeah. That was before you lived there, yeah. obviously. But that was like one of the only coherent things Dennis Rodman I just, said. I, uh, I, I wish that uh, it would have approached it differently, but it is what it is. Scorsese's he's still a genius. He's still my all-time favorite director. You forgive him. Um, I, I, <laughs> wish they, I wish they cared a little bit more Yeah. Uh, about the history that they were skewing. Um, I talked to a couple people in the film. Can hit the siren again. Some of some some pretty big characters some pretty big actors and they confided in me that they all knew it was bullshit and that they used to kind of on the set sit around behind De Niro's back and make fun of him say that Bob actually thinks this shit actually happened this way he bought it and it's it's such a you said his portrayals in the two 
you know, predecessors of this from the Scorsese library were so dead nuts on. And Russell Buffalino, the mob boss in this story, played by Joe Pesci, by the way, in terms of performance, one of Joe Pesci's greatest performances, as much as I disliked the movie, Joe Pesci was excellent. Um, but Russell Buffalino in the last, let's say, 20 years, since this story started to gain traction, has gone from the most underrated mob boss in American history to the most overrated mob boss in American history. I got to watch it, despite your lack of endorsement. No, I'm not telling you not to watch it. Pesci alone is... Oh, Pesci, and Pesci's great. It. Pesci's great in it. Yeah. Really, he's great in it. Scott Bernstein. Anything else before we wrap? Anything you want to applaud Check for the us? OG podcast. Uh, we share a, a producer. Benny has uh, been a game changer for for me and, and getting my brand up and moving uh, onto YouTube and um, putting out consistent video content now, not just audio and written. So check that out. And um, got a new uh, recruiting website that I'm doing, which is my side gig, where I, I do uh, football and basketball college recruiting. So if you're interested in that, I know you, some of your audience will be. Yes. You can check out berniesbluechips.com. I do football and basketball uh, college recruiting for Metro Detroit. and. Uh, Go check out those two documentaries I did on on uh, the true story behind Goodfellas and Casino on Fox Nation streaming. Wonderful, you're the best, man. Honestly, Thanks, I can dude. see why I can see why everyone loves you and demands <laughs> for your return. And my buddy, the Stu Cast, he's awesome. He was so excited. Wow, Stu's he, the best. He, I love that guy. Stu's the man. And I, I always let, like Ben is such a critical component, man. And I, you know, I never really thought about it in these terms though just now, but and I. Believe me, I'm not taking credit for this, Ben. It's because you're awesome. But Ben has gotten hired three times because of like this show, because people see how awesome he is. Yeah, it's great. Like you worked with him, Jack Edwin at Michigan State. I don't know if I'm allowed to say his third job with the radio station. I don't know if that's like anonymous or not. But he's gotten hired three times because people see like how awesome he is here. And I, it gets to a point where if he takes any more, like I told my buddy Adam, if he ever does his own thing now that he's left Woodward Sports. Uh, yeah, you know, Ben, you got to leave Ben alone. Two people are hiring this guy. Scott Bernson, you're the best, man. Love you and love to have you back. I could do 10 of these in a row and still have a lot left to say. I still say that I'll part with, as I mean, Goodfellas, the perfect movie. Not saying it's not. But if you really want to see what I think is the most accurate portrayal of a mob guy on film, Donnie Brasco, the Al Pacino character. That, for the most part, that's the mafia. Never seen it. Okay, well, there's a scene in that movie where it, it, he's taking a, a sledgehammer to a parking meter. And like, that's how he's making his money. Like, that gritty, unglamorous, kind of pathetic picture, that's the mafia, not, Lufon, not the Lufanza heist. But they both happen. Right. Yeah. I got to check that one out. Plus, I'm mean, Pacino. Right. That's and that's a story. true story, too. So, yeah. Maybe we'll talk about that one yes. next time after I actually see it. And I'll and, watch it. And me, and I don't, I don't think Benny, Benny wasn't with me at that point, but I had a, a blow up with Joe Pastone, the real Donnie Brasco, over some stuff. Like on tape? Uh, over phone. A phone oh, call. I want to see the stuff that's actually on tape because I, I have the tape of you shitting all over that other guy. Uh, I'm not going to say his name. I don't want to be causing any inflammatory No, I, we, did, we did a podcast on 
the real story behind Donnie Brasco. And we interviewed somebody that wasn't taken down in the case. And if you listened to the podcast, we say that in the first 20 seconds. So Joe Pistone obviously did not listen to the podcast. Yeah. And he leaves me this. He gets my number from someone who gave them. I never gave permission to give my number to. (laughs) And he leaves me this long message chastising us for telling a story that was false because the guy that we interviewed had nothing to do with his case. And, And I'm like, so you obviously didn't listen to the episode. And although he wasn't arrested in your case, he was connected to every single person that was arrested in your case and did murders for those people and was a nephew to those people. So he was more than qualified to discuss it. Um, Most of the people in your case are dead. So I got one of the guys that wasn't, even though he wasn't, you know, arrested in your case and he's lecturing me and he he doesn't give me an opportunity to call him back. (laughs) He blocks the number. And then when I called the guy that gave him my number, I was like, tell this motherfucker that I want to respond to him. He just gave me an hour long lecture about something that is totally false. He never actually consumed the episode. And you're trying to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. You get more angry mob people calling yeah. you up and threatening well, this you. Was and, a, this was an FBI agent this, that went in undercover case, into well, the mafia. Related to the mafia yeah. in this case, but... I don't feel bad, man. You know how many times people don't listen to my stuff and yell at me about it? I'm like, it's in the, me and Jimmy are like, it's literally in the first five seconds of the episode. Oh, it doesn't matter. I, I mean, read read my mentions yeah. any day of the week. I, the things that have been attributed to me that I have never said or even like discussed would blow your mind. I don't know like who these people are actually watching. I, I get so. I mean, this is, you know, join the club on that one. Although no one's threatened to kill me. <laughs> I had, a guy yeah, thre- I, had, I had a guy threatening to come over to my house. This guy's like tweeting out pictures of my wife. Around. She looks kind of cute in the picture. Uh, I married her. I'm biased. <laughs> but like, I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know what you're trying to prove with that. But but this was awesome. I love doing this. So I, I love what best. you do. Everybody loves I, you. I tell Ben all the time that I wish uh, I could have, uh, you know, Spiro every day and, and giving me all of my Detroit sports talk, not just. Yeah. If I, if I, outside, you know, I'm you, outside of Mike Valeni, there's nobody, and I'm not just saying this because you're my buddy and I'm on your show, but I, I, I don't think there's anyone better in this market outside of Mike Valeni than Justin Spiro. I mean, oh, I, thanks, man. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm your biggest fan. I appreciate that. And I have no problem being behind Valeni because I think he's the best to ever do it in yeah, this market. So too. I would never even try to get into that pool. He's the man. Um, he's the best, but. Coming from you, that's a high compliment. You Thank know, you're you, sir. Good taste, smart man yourself, and the most popular guest, arguably, we've ever had on the show. I hope people are proud of this. Very proud of Very proud. Way too long to have you back in a solo fashion. I will be having you back solo soon if you're up for it. Yep. There's so much I could do with you. Scott yep. Bernstein, you're the best. Ben, great job by you as always. I know it's fun because you got you know both your coworkers here with you at the same time. Eric is on vacation. This is like the one time he's not watching. But if you are, you know, after the fact, Eric, thanks. Love you. Spirit Avenue show. Graham Couch next week. Graham Couch has said no to me like for eight years. So this is actually a huge occasion. The night before Michigan State kicks off against Central. I can't believe this guy agreed to drive down here for this. Alas, he will be here. Graham Couch next to Shout out to my my boy, Tricky Trey Mosley. He's going to be all Big Ten this year. I love Trey Mosley. I'll yeah. talk to you about Trey Mosley right now. I love that guy, and he's a great, understated leader. For great kid, great kid. He, they just did a feature on him, too. It was one of the best ones they've done on the Spartans All Access. Fantastic. Screw Avenue Show. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs>